where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Helen Hindle. Helen is the Director of Studies for Mathematics at a secondary school in East London. Now, regular listeners to the show will know that one of the many areas of maths education that I am pretty clueless about is mixed ability or mixed attainment teaching. I've always taught in sets in the two schools I've spent my career and only experienced mixed ability teaching during my AST outreach work. So when I spoke to Lucy Rycroft-Smith on this podcast, I made a pledge to find out more about it. And as such, I was desperate to get Helen on the show. Because, as well as being an experienced teacher, Helen is also the organiser of the Mixed Attainment Maths Conference, which brings together leading practitioners in the field to share challenges and effective strategies. And when I announced on Twitter that Helen was coming on the show, I was inundated with questions concerning mixed attainment teaching, thus suggesting it is an area of interest to many of you. So, in what I thought was an absolutely fascinating conversation, we covered the following things and much, much more besides. Helen describes what a sequence of lessons on sequences would look like for her her mixed attainment year 7 class. I asked Helen why she believes in mixed attainment so much. Should we have mixed attainment for all year groups or just key stage 3? What are parents' perceptions of their students being in mixed attainment classes? What are Helen's favourite go-to resources for mixed attainment lessons? What role does formative assessment play in lessons? How does Helen get students to work in groups and talk to each other so effectively? And then the big one for me, how do you avoid teaching to the middle and ensure that the brightest kids are stretched and the weaker students are supported? We then turn our attention to growth mindset and I ask Helen what a growth mindset means to her and how does she develop it in her students. Finally, Helen shares a few book recommendations and then reflects on what she wish she knew when she first started teaching that she knows now. Now, let me say this at the outset. Helen keeps me on my toes throughout this interview. It is clear that we have quite different ways of thinking about lessons and the best ways to help our students understand key concepts. This made it a challenging but incredibly fun conversation. And I think there's little doubt that Helen came up came out on top. Indeed, following our conversation, I went on another of my big long walks to process Helen's arguments and reflect on my own teaching. And I'll be sharing my conclusion in the takeaway at the end of the interview. And whether you teach mixed attainment or setting, I know you'll get something out of this interview. Just before we crack on, I wanted to say a huge thank you to all podcast listeners who've been kind enough to buy my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths. If you enjoyed it and you have a moment to share a a review on Amazon, I'd be eternally grateful. If you didn't enjoy it, then keep the review to yourself. Anyway, let's get going, as I know this is an interview many of you have been looking forward to for ages. So, without further ado, let me introduce Helen Hindle. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side.
Okay, Helen, so we start as ever with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Okay, um, I, I actually don't have a favourite number, which I think is probably a bit disappointing. Um, <laughs> and I was going to make one up, but then I thought there's no point. So I don't, I just don't have a favourite number. Sorry. Really? Flip. I, this is a, this is a world first, this, Helen. <laughs> so no, nothing, nothing ever grabbed you in the past or leaning towards seven or anything like that. Just no favourite number. You like them no all, favourite like number. E- Sorry. Equally as much as each other. That, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> what about um, number two then? Your favourite topic in maths as a student? See, um, that's also going to, is possibly a first but when I was at school I really didn't like maths at all it was my least favorite subject and I felt that I was rubbish at it and not a maths person so therefore I didn't even have a favorite topic at school it was my least favorite subject that is fascinating so were you more more English or was there another subject yeah. that grabbed you English. yeah English was my favorite subject yeah well that is a great hook for when I ask you about your career how, how this all turned around so we'll, we'll uh, yeah well we'll get back to that in a second no this this is brilliant Helen and all right then number three what what job would you like to do if you weren't a teacher okay um I can't really picture myself being anything other than a teacher um, but before going into teaching I worked as a nursing assistant in a psychiatric ward so I think if I was going to pursue a different career maybe it would be something in in that field flipping heck fantastic okay right well you've hooked us in straight away with this Helen so you're there in in school you're not a big fan of maths at all and yet now you're a a high profile teacher running a very successful uh, mixed attainment conference so so how how did you turn it around from there what what happened take us through um, your school days to where you are now oh okay so um well, so, so at, at school, I, I did quite well in most subjects apart from maths and um, we were set and um, I didn't end up in the top set for maths and then became, I just kind of convinced myself that I wasn't a maths person. I didn't like maths at all. Um, I didn't have a very good experience of how it was taught to me at school wasn't wasn't great, I don't think. Um, but what happened, how I ended up being a maths teacher was um, I applied for a job as a teaching assistant working with pupils with behavioural problems right. um, at a secondary school in Brighton. And um, I didn't actually get that job. So um, they phoned me up and said that I hadn't been successful, but they offered me a role as a teaching assistant attached to the maths department instead. Ah, right. And um, I, I, sorry, what was that? Oh, no, sorry. No, no, no. Keep going. Oh, yeah. So um, and I, I, I almost turned it down cause, because of how I felt about maths. And I was just like, I'm not very good at maths. I don't like maths. I don't really want to work with the maths department. Um, but I had two small children that just both started primary school and I really wanted a job in a school so I thought oh, I'm just going to accept this job and I didn't really think that it would that it would last that long but anyway so I took I took the job and then um, I accepted it and I was really lucky because in my second year working in that school with the maths department um, Andrew Blair joined the department as the new head of maths and he just transformed the way maths was taught in the school and he made me realize that I didn't hate maths at all I'd just been taught it really badly and um, so I worked with him and I saw how maths could be taught and how it could be taught well. And he convinced me that I could be a maths teacher and kind of encouraged me to pursue that route. So um, I already had a degree in sociology and I had an MA in political history. But I went back to university to do another degree in maths education so that I could train to be a maths teacher. And then um, I did the whole graduate teacher training role and um, just moved around schools in Brighton, in the Brighton area, until I became head of department. And um, then I had the opportunity to work with Andrew again at a different school in Brighton as an AST, which I did for a bit. And um, I've recently started working as head of department um, again at a school in Raynham, where I've been for the last two years. So that's sort of 
how that I got into it. That is fascinating. That is fascinating. Can I just ask, because we're probably going to dig into this a little bit later on, but when you say, kind of looking back now, you were taught maths badly as a student and that kind of put you off and you, you didn't think you are a maths person. Can you be specific on that? What, what ways were you taught maths that, that kind of turned you against the subject? Um, so at school, I didn't find it very interesting at all. So um, it was very textbook orientated. And we were um, basically the teacher would um, model a method on the board. We'd all copy it into our books as an example of how to do it. And then we would just follow the steps to answer the questions. So I never I was never in a lesson where I kind of felt intrigued or hooked in. But I think as well, a large part of it was because I was in the top set for everything apart from maths. When I didn't end up in the top set for maths, I think I've just become a bit disgruntled and thought, well, obviously, I'm not good at maths. And then because I thought I wasn't good at it. I decided I didn't like it and just became not invested in it at all. That's so. very interesting. And when you said you could, you said something interesting as well, Helen, there, that you, you didn't think you're a maths person. Do you think is, is that from, stem from the same reason that you weren't in top set? Whereas for something like English, did you consider yourself an, an English person, say? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I kind of thought that um, it, I, I sort of had this idea that I think it's quite a common idea that people have that it's a different type of personality and I sort of thought oh I'm creative and I'm really good at English but I'm not mathematically minded you know I just I just kind of convinced myself that that was the case so that's very and and kind of looking back now well where, where you are now would you consider yourself a maths person or do you think there's no such thing yeah I just think there's no such thing I think everyone can learn maths and everyone can enjoy maths I don't think it's about being born a maths person or a not maths person so yeah I think there's no such thing I think um it's our role as teachers to kind of get that enthusiasm for maths from from our students fantastic we're going to be digging into exactly how to do that later on in the show this is this is perfect Helen so what I like to do at this stage just when when we're getting on well is I like to bring everyone on a downer and just just think about when something (laughs) goes wrong in lessons so I want you to just think back to um, earlier on in your career or as recent as you like and can you just talk us through a lesson that you you planned and delivered that that didn't quite go to plan and more specifically what, what did you learn from the experience um, so I think, um, I don't know if, if I can talk about a specific lesson, but obviously everyone makes mistakes, don't they, as, as they're learning. And uh, um, early on in my career, I think the, the thing that kind of went, when the lessons went badly, what it was usually about the fact that I hadn't correctly identified pupils' starting points and I was giving them tasks to work on that were either inaccessible to them or not challenging enough. And I think what I've learned from that over time is that it's important for the teacher and the pupils to be aware of their starting point, And it's important to give pupils opportunities to self-select the level of challenge that they work mm. at and that's sort of what's motivated the, the, the learning journeys that I use at the moment. Uh, and now when you say um, kind of identifying the starting points when things went wrong there was it more that you pitched things too high or, or too low for certain students? Um, I think it was um, well it could it could have been it it could have been either but like there's one specific case that kind of comes to mind and I was trying to do like a functional skills task with the class and it was very open it very much involved them reading a whole set of instructions and thinking about how to approach the problem and I hadn't really taken into account the fact they had very little experience of ever doing that type of thing before so I'd kind of gone full on without really preparing them for how, how to approach that style of learning. So, and what what happens in those lessons? Because I've been there myself many a time. Just 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 describe the kind of feeling as a teacher. How, how do you know things are going wrong? Oh, so you know, I know things are going wrong when the students kind of on mass 
seem fairly unhappy <laughs> about, <laughs> yes. the, about the lesson and they've disengaged from the task and they're just like I don't know how to do it I don't know what I'm doing and there's just that general feeling of, of they're just not getting to grips with it and they're not enjoying so it's, it's challenging but not to the point where it's enjoyable or accessible it's just kind of beyond their reach yeah it's, so, it's, a, it's an awful feeling isn't it and what, what kind of looking back there what, what would you do let's say that functional skills lesson what, what could you have done differently um so so when I kind of revisited that, the following lesson with the same class, I put a lot more structure into it. So I thought about how to break that task down to how to get them started on it. So kind of um, gave them the opportunity to think about how they would sequence that task, what they were going to do first and, and, and what they would do next. So that's that sort of approach. Got it. Fantastic. Well, that, that'll lead nicely into how your mm. kind of planning and delivery of lessons happens happens these days. So I wonder if you could just pick a topic or mm. a lesson or a sequence of lessons, however you want to interpret it. And just talk us through, firstly, your planning process, Helen, and then what, what the lesson actually looks like. And I'll be annoyingly interrupting you at various stages through it. So, yeah, describe us the, the class, the, the topic, the lesson, and just, just take us through it, if that's okay. Okay. Um, well, I think I'm going to talk about sequences just because that's what I've been doing most recently with my year seven class. Um, so they're, they're a mixed attainment class. Um, and there's, I think there's about 26 of them in the class um, with a full a full range of like prior knowledge and, and prior attainment. Um, I think so. So when I'm starting any topic, I, I start with the learning journey. So I think about what the key skills are that underpin the concept and, and how those build upon one another. And then I devise a set of questions which I give to the pupils prior to any teaching, which helps them to identify what they can already do and what they need to learn next. So, th so that's how it starts with me. So sort of planning the whole learning journey across the unit of work. Could you give us and, an example just for sequences of, of what would some of those questions be, just, just so we can get a sense of that, Helen? Um, well, so for sequences, so across the top of the learning journey, where you, where I kind of break down the topic into its different parts, it will start off with um, sort of describing a sequence in words or continuing a sequence, and then moving on to um, finding a length term rule for the sequence, or deciding whether or not a, a, ter a number is a term within the sequence and, and justifying why. And then, like, at the top end of the learning journey, it would be looking at quadratic sequences and understanding how they different, differ from linear sequences. Whoa, so, so we've, got, we've got a full thing there, right? So from describing and continuing basic number sequences right up to quadratics, that, that's the learning journey. Um, yeah, that and that's, that's the learning journey that they will be looking at over a half term, uh, so sort of two, three, three weeks, really, is, is how long we'll spend on that learning journey. So um, the questions that go with it are quite, so for the initial start point where they're self-assessing, they're actually quite brief, quite closed questions, just because it's just to give them a rough guide. I don't want to kind of spend the start of a unit with lots of time assessing. It's sort of, it's a quick 10 minutes just to give them a, a rough start point. So they have some um, some questions that they answer just to see what they can already do. And is and, this, and so, I, sorry to interrupt, Helen, is yeah. this in, uh, is it kind of an assessment setting? Is it, are they doing it on their own in silence? And is this, yeah, yeah. And, and this is the kind of first, their, their first experience of sequences in this unit is they're in kind of doing these essentially kind of practice assessment style questions. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, and, and it's how we start every unit of work. So they're, they're basically given an A4 sheet of coloured paper, it's blue paper, and it has like the learning journey at the top, 
And then underneath it, it has a set of questions that match the statements on the learning journey. Got it. And then they get roughly 10 minutes just to see what they can do. And I talk to them a lot about the fact that not, not to panic if they can't answer any of the questions. And um, that just all we're doing is identifying their start point and seeing what they do already know so that they know what they need to be focusing on lessons and so that I know what I need to be moving them on to in lessons. So there's no sort of a fear around the assessment. It's a very it's a very quick process. And then they self-mark it and they highlight on the learning journey what they think they're comfortable with. And, and I do talk to them about the fact that it is just a guide. Just because they've answered a question right at the start of a unit of work doesn't mean they have a full understanding of that skill. But it, it's a guide. It's kind of introducing what their start point might be so they've got a rough idea. Got it. And I'm imagining because it's a mixed attainment class and this will be the case and we're going to talk about the difference between mixed attainment and setting obviously later on. But I'd imagine you're getting a wide variety of answers and different points within the learning journey at this initial stage. Would that be right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Some students have managed to answer an awful lot of the questions and other students haven't really got any answers successfully. And then also it's kind of talking to them about the fact that each learning journey for each unit of work could look completely different just because they've got a a higher starting point on some topics of work doesn't mean that it will always be the case that that's where they start. Um, So, yeah, so that's what the learning journey looks like. Flipping it. So so (laughs) now as a teacher, my heart's racing. So I'm I'm here. I've got my room of year year sevens. They're sat there. They've self self assessed that or self marked these things. They're all at different points on this learning journey. What on earth are you doing next, Helen? All right. So, so with so wherever possible, I try to introduce a new topic with an inquiry. So, and there is a really nice um, inquiry prompt for sequences. So I start with that. Um, and the reason why it's so nice to introduce a topic with inquiry with a mixed attainment class is because all the students can ask a question or make an observation. And um, Andrew described it brilliantly in his blog post when he talks about how the students questions and observations about the prompt they unites the class in a mathematical process that ranges from relatively basic definitions and procedures to like more sophisticated conjectures so they kind of they make their comments that they can they they ask their questions and make their comments and and then you collate those on the board so you're kind of annotating what they've said and that leads to a really interesting class discussion where they're starting to build upon one another's ideas so it's it's kind of it's very important when you're going through that process that you think about which students to go to first. So the students that I think may have a a less sophisticated response, I would go to first so that you're building up, building up that knowledge as, as you go around the room. Got it. Now, can I ask at this point, and I, this will be a really convoluted question, Helen, so forgive me, because I'm not even too sure what I'm about to say next myself. But what one of the things I've often struggled with, and the more I read about this, the more concerned I am about it in my own teaching, is these kind of ex- forming expectations about how kids are going to do with a particular topic. And so I always use the example that I had a year 11 class a couple of years ago and I had a girl in there called Josie who would nail everything. And I had a girl in there called Jen who would struggle with with most things. And I knew that Jen struggled. So I would always, whenever the kids were set off to do some work, I'd always go to Jen first. And, and even like innocent sounding things like, are you OK with this, Jen? Do you need any help, Jen? I, I now believe would put in her head quite low expectations. Why is he asking me if I need help? Is he expecting me to struggle? Blah, 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 blah. Now, your technique here of um, you're kind of kind of preempting. You've got got a sense of which kids are going to give the least sophisticated answers. But am I right in saying 
by still just giving them an opportunity to say whatever you they want, you're still not limiting their their expectations of what they can contribute. Does that make sense? It, it, yeah, I, I think so. And and when I say I've got an idea of what they're going to say, that's not based on where they usually are in lessons. That's based on whilst they're coming up with their observations and their questions and they're discussing it with the people on their table, I'm circulating the room and I'm listening to what's right. being said and I'm looking for, okay, which questions and comments do I want to go to first and which ones am I going to be saving for the end? I so see. So it's so when the prompt goes up, the kids have got say five minutes or whatever to have a think, have a discussion, and you can circulate. So it's not when you're uh, kind of facilitating this discussion and collecting answers, you're not doing that cold. You've already had a bit of a sense from walking yeah. around the room. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I see. I've got it. And do you? And find, then while oh, sorry, you're circulating on. as well, you kind of you're encouraging to ask more interesting questions or to come up with a more interesting observation so it's kind of that not letting them off the hook and pushing them and saying um you know can you come up with something else from you know it's that kind of thing as well this is interesting this because i'm and what i'm going to do after this interview helen I'll, I'll reflect on what we spoke about and i'll do a big long takeaway at the end but straight away I'm, I'm thinking here how different this would be to one of my sequences lessons because i would have in mind that say lesson one is going to be about kind of continuing simple sequences and then lesson two, we're going to start looking at um, nth terms, maybe um, looking at nth term rules for se uh, the, the sequence itself. Lesson three, maybe we're going to be looking at um, using nth term rules to say whether terms are parts of sequences and so on. Then we might bring patterns in. But I'm sensing this lesson isn't like this at all. Your, your lesson one is to do this inquiry and essentially not anything could happen, but it, it's not the case that every child's going to be having the same experience within that lesson. Well, would that be fair? Yeah, that's that's exactly the case. Um, and actually, that's going to be true for the rest of the lessons in the unit of work as well. So so the other thing that happens with the inquiry, it gives you from their questions and comments, you also then get a further idea about their different starting points. So then they're working on the inquiry and they're exploring what it is that they mm. need to explore. And then that links into the further lessons that we would cover in a unit of work. Yeah. yeah. So and I will try and start each lesson with some sort of class discussion to again sort of re reform ideas about where they've got to now and and who who's moved on and who's still at which different point right so um, um ju yeah, just sorry? at this just at this stage Helen, we I, I don't know how easy it is to do kind of audio but can you give us a sense of what this inquiry is oh um it's an inter it's called it's to do with intersecting sequences so there's two sequences and they've both got some common terms and then um, written next to each sequence is the nth term rule but obviously the students don't know that that's an nth term rule because they've never had that introduced to them before and then underneath there's a third sequence that's been made from the common terms of the other two sequences yes i know the exact one and i'll put a link to this in the show notes so that's really interesting that so straight away they're confronted with with the nth term rule but there's no um, yeah, it, that's almost not the focus of this initial part at all. You're not saying this is the nth term rule, this is the sequence it generates. It's just there. and It's maybe... just there, but some, some students, when they're making their observations, realise the connection because they'll say, well, the top sequence goes up in threes and they've noticed that there's a three in front of the N. So they're starting to make observations without really realising what that rule is or that it is an nth term rule. 
Got it. Um, can I ask as well, just just a, a practical thing. How are the kids sat here um, in your room for this thing? And both in terms of are they groups or are they sat in individually? And also, how have you chose if they are in groups? How have you chosen those groups, Helen? Oh, okay. So um, my my room's arranged in, in groups of four. So I kind of think that's a really good number to have them working together. Um, and I don't. I mean, I have a seating plan, but it's not based on. Um, ability or attainment so they're mixed within that so really the seating plan is just generated sort of alphabetically at the start of the year when I don't know anyone (laughs) and then um, as I get to know them I put them together in combinations where I think they'll work well together so yeah and but within at certain points within a lesson I might call students together so for example that they there may be a lesson within a unit of work where I've got some students doing a particular task or doing a particular thing with a multiple entry point task. And I'll say, oh, can, can you four come and work together on this table? But that's not then a new seating plan for them. That's just for, for this part of the lesson, I want you working together. And then right. they'll go back to their um, original groupings at some point. So it's quite flexible as well, really. I see. F- fantastic. So if we are she oh and the other thing i forgot to ask helen there was no um obviously the start of this particular unit was the kind of mini assessment for want of want of a better phrase in in the learning yeah. journey um if if we're in lesson two and stuff do uh, w- would the start of the lesson always be some kind of discussion based thing there wouldn't be anything like for example a, a low stakes quiz or a corbett maths five of the day or anything like that is it is uh, it yeah yeah no there wouldn't be that um yeah it, it's it's mostly i try to start with a, a discussion where i can and that might that might look different so we might start with a set of true false questions and i'll say to them um give me a reason why you think it's true or false it might be that or it might be an open starter where you're saying something like what is the same what is different or um it might just be similar to an inquiry where i say i'll ask a question or make a comment so it's different types of things that then generate a class discussion so that you've got different pupils contributing different things. And that's again, it. that's part of the process of assessing where they're now at in their understanding. And obviously that's going to be different. They're at different places because it is a mixed attainment class. Got it. But crucially, it would always you'd always lean towards the discussion, if possible, as opposed to a closed set of five questions from different topics or so to say. Yes. Yeah. Got it. Fantastic. Can I can I ask as well, Helen? So if we just take you back to, to lesson one and we've um, we're, we're kind of you've wandered around the groups and you're now at the point where you're collecting in suggestions and observations and so on. And I was fortunate enough to interview Andrew twice now. So um, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by the um, by, by the way these inquiries work. Could you just give us a sense from the from your year sevens? What will be the kind of range of um different observations and, and questions that, that the students will be coming up with for this particular sequences inquiry oh so, so with the initial prompt what their initial response is? yes yes um so some students it is it's very simple they're just noticing what the first sequence goes up by and what the next sequence underneath is going up by it's, it's as simple as that um or they might be saying what numbers they think come next in the sequence um, they might talk about what they've got in common. So some of them do notice that there's some um, terms that are circled and that's because they're in both sequences. Um, some of them start to notice, I think like I already mentioned, they start to look at the nth term rule and notice there's a connection between that and the sequence. They notice that if it's going up by three, it's three N. And then some of them start to notice um, the link between 
what's being added on as well. So, um, oh, it's hard to say without the inquiry yes. in front of me. <laughs> but, um, they'll, they'll, they, they make a connection between the first term in the sequence and the, like, the second part of the nth term rule. Does that make yes, sense? Yes, it does. Yeah, and as I say, I'll put a link to this so people can get a, a visual idea of it. And yeah. flipping it, so you're... You're collecting in all these responses or all these observations and, and kind of annotating them on the board and so on, I assume. And then this is the bit that gets me on. And this is the bit I, I struggle with whenever I've tried to run inquiries. Like, what do you do next? How do you do you decide what the kids work on? Do the kids decide well, what, what happens next in the lesson? So um, you can use the regulatory cards to kind of give them an, an idea to think about what they might want to do next. Um, and I kind of split those up because there's ones about how they're going to work. So are they going to work alone or are they going to work with someone else? And there's also what they're actually going to be doing. But I think um, in when students are new to inquiry, um, it's still I still tend to structure it quite a lot. So um, one of the things that they can choose is ask the teacher for something to do. And when they're unfamiliar with inquiry, a lot of them will um, opt for that option. So I always have some sort of task um, that's that's linked to the inquiry that I can give them that they can then work on. Um, so that's that's usually where it goes. So with the sequences inquiry, there's a task just like that, where they've got the opportunity to in, in, um, investigate other pairs of sequences. So some students investigate that by just um, adding on some terms to sequences or they start to describe the sequence in words. But other students that have made that connection between the nth term rule and how that's linked to the sequences they'll start to come up with an nth term rule and then they use the nth term rule to um to generate a third sequence so the range of what they're doing within that inquiry is quite wide but i've given them um a task that allows them to access that got it flipping it and can can i ask Helen as well because this is the this is the other bit i i personally find difficult um so if we go back to how i might uh, approach this this um sequence of lessons uh, for, for sequences where I, I know i've got kind of key things i want the kids to be able to do find the nth term use the nth term rule relate the nth term rule to patterns and so on and there'll yeah. be some <laughs> lots of kind of direct instruction or explicit instruction for want of a better phrase throughout that and modeling and all that kind of thing and then and then practice for the kids to do where where and when does that happen throughout this sequence of lessons Helen? because i would imagine that different kids are ready for different bits at different times uh so does the is there opportunities for for that actual kind of explicit teaching within here and then what kind of practice do the kids get of these kind of key skills if that makes sense See, see, that's, um, yeah, that's exactly the thing. And I think sometimes people think in a mixed attainment classroom that you don't do any explicit teaching, yes, which is yes. a complete misconception. So, so you do, but how you do it may be different and may fall at different times. So some of it comes out of the class discussion because students are sharing their methods and their approaches, which other students will learn from by, by, by being part of that discussion. Then there's obviously the time that they're actually doing the task and I'm going around and circulating and then I'll be giving explanations to different students at different times. So it might be to individual students or I might call over students as well. I might say, if you need an explanation of, of how to find the nth term rule, come over to me now because I'm going through that now. So it might be in that way or... Um, and again, not just giving explanations, but questioning. So going around and, and giving students different questions that are going to move them on. 
So it's kind of, I suppose it's adapting so that you realise that it doesn't all have to happen from the front of the classroom to all students at the same time. So some of it will, but some of it is also about what happens when you're circulating the room. And, and I think that um, when you introduce a topic for the first time, that lesson is probably the trickiest because that's when most students are stuck. But then over the sequence of lessons, sort of within a lesson, they will have started to learn a new skill and be using different approaches. And then in the following lesson, they're still sort of practicing that and developing that. So they'll get stuck at different times. If that makes them ready to move on at different times, and then it's possible to give the explanation to them then. Yes, it, yeah. oh, it makes perfect sense. I'm just thinking logistically or just to keep on top of things this must be very hard though right if you've got 20 25 even 30 students just getting a sense of where each of them are at at, at different stages like how do you keep on top of it all um well it just it's it's kind of adapting your approach really so um one of the things when I, when I was at one of the mixed entertainment mass conferences something that i learned in jeremy hodgins workshop which i thought was really interesting is he kind of said and mixed entertainment math teaching isn't harder, it's just different. And and I thought that's really true. So so people that have always taught mixed entertainment classes in other countries that then come and work in England and they're asked to teach a set, that they find that tricky and they find that really challenging. So it's just because it's a different it's a different approach and, and getting used to that in the initial stages it feels difficult maybe, but when you've been doing it for a while it's just become second nature and you and you're not really thinking about it in that way anymore. And it's also sort of being aware that not every piece of information has to come to me, from me. I mean, it doesn't have to come from me as a teacher. They're working on groups in groups of four, and then there'll be someone else on the table that could maybe explain that to them. So they're not always waiting for it to come directly from me. I see. And can I ask as well? So, uh, again, uh, just because this is uh, kind of so so alien to the way I, I teach, Alan, so forgive me if some of these questions sound a bit stupid, but... So if I want kids to learn how to find the nth term for, for a sequence, I would tend to kind of model it for, for the whole class. But then crucially, I will have a series of, of questions lined up on a worksheet or whatever that I have. Um, in recent years, I've, I've definitely thought a lot more about the, the sequence of questions that I ask kids and, and using principles of variation theory and so on to make sure kids get really intelligent practice working their way through and making making kind of links and, and hopefully developing conceptual understanding throughout the sequence of questions. Is there opportunities for that kind of solid bang through, get a load of practice done with, within this se uh, sequence of inquiry lessons? Or is well, it... That, yes, yeah, sorry, go on. That, yeah, sorry. So definitely, because it's not a series of inquiry lessons. So ah, right. I'm, I will start with an inquiry to introduce a topic and that yes. might last. It might only last one lesson. It might last two or three lessons. But there's a series of lessons after that. And what students are doing in the rest of the lessons isn't an inquiry. So um, it might be that there is that they're doing a multiple entry point task where they've all got the same resource, but they're doing different things with it. Or it might be that they are working on different sets of questions and different tasks, depending on where they are on that learning journey. So they'd still use, they still have, and they're still given the same sort of resources that you might use in a setted class, but different students will be given different resources. Well, different students choose different resources. They're actually given, the, all students get the same set of resources, but they will choose which ones they need to work on based on their progress along the learning journey. Got it. Got it. And 
So it's it's very it can be very heavily resourced. So lessons where they are doing different tasks or different sets of questions, it's very resource heavy because you're essentially giving them a a set of worksheets or tasks that are stapled together and, and they're choosing from that. So it can be quite resource heavy. But once you've prepared it and um, prepared it collaboratively as well with your team. So sort of coming up with those tasks or um, questions, you do that as a team. Um, so that that kind of sharing of that makes producing the lessons less time consuming. But you do have to be prepared that it is going to be there's going to be maybe quite a lot of photocopying or printing when when they are using different sets of questions and different tasks. That makes perfect sense. This, this is fascinating, this, Helen. Um, and c- can I ask you a bit about student choice? Because this is this is an area that amazes me. What, so I so I've got kids who, and I, I talk about this in my book. I had I a year eleven child who would brilliant at simplifying fractions, terrible at solving equations. Given a choice, she would simplify fractions all day long because she was good at them, because she felt that she was making progress, she could see success, loads of ticks, all that kind of thing. Do you is that ever a problem? Do you get kids choosing the wrong thing? Either kids. Um, either choosing something that's too easy for them because they want to get a load of load of things done and, and feel like they're, they're successful, or likewise, kids choosing things that are far, far, far too hard for them whenever they would be better suited choosing something that's going to help develop their foundational skills that they need to access the more challenging material later on. Um, how do you help kids choose the right thing? So, so that definitely happens. That's definitely a problem, which is why as a teacher, you can't just wash your hands of it and go, yes. oh, they've chosen that task. Yes. You have to be circulating and checking that they've chosen appropriately. But the really important thing is changing the culture of your classroom, which is linked to that sort of my whole beliefs around growth mindset. So it's changing pupils' perceptions of what it looks like to be successful in maths. So if students think that by the end of the lesson they need to have 20 correctly answered questions to be successful, it's retraining them to realise that that's not the case. And actually what success looks like is are they moving along their learning journey? So I might go along to a student and say, "Um, why have you picked task B? Because I'm looking at your learning journey and you can already answer this type of question. So um, you're not learning anything new with that task and really you need to be looking at the next task. So it's kind of having those conversations with them. But generally speaking, most students, um, most students, they want to be challenged and they want to make progress. And by giving them that learning journey where they get to refer back to it and highlight different parts of it, and they get to keep a journal next to it, like a a diary of of what they've been learning and and what they can do, um, that process kind of motivates them to want to move on. They want to see themselves moving along that learning journey. But it is definitely about changing the culture of the classroom so that so that they don't see success in the in the way that you described, so that they don't think I have to have lots of correctly answered questions. They, I would hope that the majority of students in, in my classes don't feel that way, that they know that to me success is have you made progress? Is there something you can do now that you couldn't do before? Is there something you understand now that you can explain to someone else that you wouldn't have been able to explain before? So that they kind of know that that's what it looks like. And and that doesn't mean that students won't sometimes try and opt out and try and choose the wrong task. But again, that's my responsibility as a teacher to make sure that I, I'm not allowing that to happen and that I'm, I'm redirecting them when that does happen. 
Got it, got it. Um, can I ask it as well, Helen? I've got one more kind of question about the, the whole the process of this. But first, can you just tell us how does this sequence of lessons end? What what's what's the kind of end point here? So what I'm picturing so far is it started off with an inquiry. And then say there's five lessons or six lessons or whatever there is in this particular uh, topic unit at different points. Kids are working on different things and there's some explicit teaching in there. There's some small group stuff and, and so on. But how, do, how does it all wrap up? So uh, at the end of a unit of work, um, they're given an assessment task. And for each skill along the, um, the learning journey, there's um, three different types of questions. There's a fluency question, a problem solving question and a reasoning question. Um, so because for me, reasoning and problem solving, that's not extension. That's not how you challenge yes. your most able. I think all students, regardless of their prior attainment or what level of difficulty they're working at, all students should be in involved in problem solving and reasoning in the tasks they're doing and the questions they're answering. So because we assess for that, we teach for that as well. So so in, in the lessons, they'll be involved in those types of activities. So um, so um, the assessment task there'll be a, um, a set of questions for each of the skills on the learning journey that's broken down in that way. So we assess um, them again at the end of the unit of work. We don't give them a percentage or a grade or any kind of score. What we do, what the teachers do is they mark their answers and they highlight on the learning journeys the different skills that they think students have demonstrated. Then what we do is we identify a skill that they still need to work on. And we will um, model. So we'll look look at their assessment task for a question that they got wrong and we model a solution to that. Or we explain to them um, with our written feedback how they got that wrong. Then there's um, sorry, why they got that wrong and what they need to do differently. Yes. And then there'll be um, one or two lessons, which we call the learning from feedback lessons, where they're given opportunity to go back and revisit that 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 skill that they that that question that they got wrong in the assessment. And then we round it up by setting them a challenge question so that they've had their written feedback. They've had an opportunity to spend further time practicing. And then we set them a challenge question to 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 see whether that has then moved on and whether they can now answer the answer the kind of question correctly that they got wrong before. Got it. Got it. But well, I guess my question is, and I asked that I asked this to Andrew, um, but I'm very interested in your take on it. What? to play devil's advocate for a moment what's the argument against teaching them in say the way i would teach them where it's each lesson we're going to do a particular skill and then at the end of it let's do this inquiry when they're in a position to use all the different skills that they've, they've acquired throughout the sequence of lessons to really kind of go to town on this inquiry and take it really really far what, what what's the argument against doing it that way around helen I don't know that there is necessarily an argument against doing it that way around. Um, wh why I like to start with an inquiry is because the fact that they don't have necessarily have all the prior information or knowledge, that the process of the inquiry is what motivates them to seek that. So they're, they're intrigued and they want to know how to do it. And they're asking me as, as the teacher, how do I do this? How do I find that out? So, so the, the desire for knowledge is coming from them rather than from me saying, this is what you need to know how to do, and then giving them something afterwards. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So it's, 
were, I guess the argument would be that the motivation comes from kind of a sense of purpose, that, that they want to learn these particular skills and ask you to be taught these particular skills because they see a purpose to it because they've been hooked in by the inquiry. Would, would that be right? I think so, yeah. I think that's what I'm trying to say. And I think by, because you start... The reason that it's nice, I think, with a mixed atonement class to start with an inquiry is that you've got a task straight away that's accessible for all of them, regardless of what prior knowledge they have. So it's a nice way to start um, to start a new unit of work because you get to introduce those things gradually and you're not trying to get everyone to do the same thing from very different start points. So yes. that's why I like to start with an inquiry. But you can, I mean, it doesn't have to be that they, that they always... It's something you always do at the start of a unit. Um, that's just how personally how I like to use them. Got it. And we're, and we're going to dig into the kind of generalities and the specifics of mixed attainment um, in a second, Helen. But final question on this. Would would every topic unit have an inquiry in it for you? Or would, would there be somewhere you don't particularly lend themselves well to, to an inquiry? And if so, how would you, how would you deal with those in a mixed attainment setting? So, um, yeah, so definitely not every topic starts with an inquiry. It, um, if there's an inquiry prompt on the website that we can use, and I, I will use it. <laughs> um, I've also come up with a couple when there hasn't been an inquiry prompt. So, like, the, the uh, maths department at, at my school kind of collaboratively came up with a prompt when we were um, – I can't remember what we were doing now. Um, oh, um, uh prime factor decomposition so we kind of came up with something for that as well so, so 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 we'll try and devise one if there isn't one there but there isn't always an inquiry prompt or it, it might like you said it might be a topic that doesn't necessarily lend itself to that as well so um so i would start but in in a way i would use a similar approach in that i would start with something um at, like a star activity that's open and ask ask them to kind of come up with questions and or comments around that so and I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, Helen, but you couldn't yeah. think of a topic off the top of your head that you've taught recently that wouldn't lend itself well to an inquiry. And, and can you remember how you did start that one off? So I don't, I don't know if I would say that it's that topics that don't lend themselves to inquiry, but there might be a topic that hasn't got an right. inquiry. Problem. Sure, sure. Yeah. So. Um, oh, so one that we did recently, constructions. We're doing constructions. Ah, and there, yeah, there isn't an inquiry yeah. for constructions. So we we started that off in a different way so um it is sort of off the top of my head what did we do um so with that type of um so we would have still started with the learning journey yeah. but on the, on the first lesson i suppose um it was just getting them into uh, with 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 constructions more of the lessons would have been around students doing different tasks or answering different questions and necessarily those multiple entry point tasks because again it doesn't lend itself necessarily well yes, to that sort yes. of task yeah so it's i suppose that the, the 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 resources the activities or the questions that i might be asking the students would be the same that you would be asking of a setted class the difference is that the range that there is within each lesson and and when they get that explanation to, so that they're moving at their own pace through those different sets of resources 
Got it. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to probably keep referring back to that, um, to the Year 7 sequences thing uh, um, throughout throughout this kind of next set of, of, of questions, Helen. But I just want to move on to kind of teaching mixed attainment more generally first. And <laughs> first one, because uh, I, I get this wrong, and I interviewed Joe Bowler for the uh, Test Maths podcast years ago, and she was straight on to me for this one. I often say mixed ability, but mixed. I've noticed you, you refer to it as mixed attainment. What's the difference and why is it important, Helen? Oh, okay. So um, it's taken me a while to get to get used to saying mixed attainment. I used to keep slipping back into saying mixed <laughs> yeah. ability because that's what I used to say before. Yeah. Um, I think what for me, what the difference is, is that so I don't think ability is fixed, and I'm not convinced that you can measure it. So when we're talking about ability. I don't know that that necessarily makes sense. And when I'm talking about mixed attainment, for me, it's sort of what we do that's different from setting. And I think that setting is actually about setting by attainment. So when when schools talk about having pupils in ability groups, like I said, I don't think you can measure that and I don't think it's fixed. I think usually what's happened is that they've set students based on exam results or test results or some kind of assessment process which for me means that they are setting them by attainment. That's what they've done. They've set students into groups based on their prior attainment. And I suppose that's why I say mixed attainment, because in our classes, we'll have a, 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 you know pupils with a range of different exam results from you know different key stage two results, things like that. So, so that's why I say attainment rather than ability. Got it. And I think, I mean, the, the old cliche that people always band out, and I've, I've said it numerous times myself, is that every class, whether it's set it or not, is mixed attainment or mixed ability. And I think something you said earlier on really struck me there, um, Helen, that is that kids are kids are good at different topics um, or, or are quicker at grasping different topics. So within a top set, um, I, I'll, I'll have some students who are absolutely amazing at algebra and are particularly poor at, at some of the uh, shape geometry style things. So within topics, you really do get this this broad spectrum of attainment. So I guess the I guess what I'm trying to say there is that you, it almost lends itself best to mixed attainment setting because you don't you're going to get this kind of diversion of of um, kind of competencies for want of a better phrase with um, for, for different topics anyway within sets so mixed attainment you're kind of taking that off the table because you're going to say right I, d I don't know how everybody's going to grasp these different topics so i'm going to get this wide spectrum all, all the time so i might as well go mixed attainment anyway D does that make any sense at all yeah um yeah that's yeah that completely makes sense and i think it it's also recognizing that and i think this is what you've said that just because a student has um, yeah, a, a low starting point in one particular topic doesn't mean they, that they'll still have a low starting point in a different topic. So, yeah, it's it's kind of just saying that, the, yeah, these differences exist. So so just be just be acknowledging that and then and planning for that, teaching for that. So. Exactly. Yeah, you said it far better than I did there, Helen. <laughs> Thank you for that one. Um, if you were to, to kind of summarise to somebody who is maybe a sceptic or maybe just someone like me who's, who's just interested, why you believe so passionately in mixed attainment teaching, what, what, what would you say to them? Um, so I think if you look at, so at the, like the community of mixed attainment teachers that's come up from, from the conferences and from the website, what we have on our, on our homepage is that we believe that mixed attainment classrooms are a demonstration of social justice and they enable children to learn without limits. 
And and we also believe that labelling children and setting them according to some notion of their fixed ability places limits on their learning. So that's kind of what we feel as a community. Um, and I think the social justice thing is really important. So for me personally, it's kind of being aware that in, in, in schools that I've gone into, which have had setting and looking at where the pupil premium students are and, and realising that they're um, disproportionately appearing in the lower attaining groups. And there's so many reasons for that. And I think when when you look at the different um, issues uh, that can prevent students from performing well on on any sort of exam or test, that those factors are often not about factors of ability. They're they're about other things. And I think there's there's many many reasons why some pupil premium students will underperform in tests or exams. And if we then limit their experience of learning and get, have these preconceived ideas about what they're capable of and then also make them feel that way about those ideas, I think that's massively wrong and, and we're doing them a, a big disservice. So so that's why I, I so strongly feel about mixed attainment teaching. And um, the other thing that I feel quite strongly about is I don't see why why we want to segregate students, why we want to say these higher attaining students should not be in the same classroom as lower attaining students, as though they're somehow going to be, um, somehow going to have their learning experience affected negatively by being in the same classroom as lower attaining students. I just find that quite a difficult concept to get my head around. I think that... Um, we don't segregate people in real life that way. In in a workplace, you work with lots of people with different levels of skills and a different range of a different skill set from ourselves, and and that's normal. So why are we trying to segregate children in our classrooms? I, is 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 a confusing concept for me. Yes, no, I I, I can certainly see that. Um, yeah, let let me let me ask it in this order first. Then have you have you taught sets, Helen? I have, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Are there any again, just to play devil's advocate for a second, are there any advantages that you to teaching sets that you see that just don't transfer across to, to mixed attainment? Or is it kind of a, just a win win situation all the way through? Um for for me it's a win win situation because I, I I have taught in schools that set and I now actively choose not to teach in schools that set. So I won't work in a school that has um where all classes are set and that's the reason that I've left two previous jobs is new head teachers have arrived and wanted to change the way that maths was taught and wanted to go to a setted approach um, it's the reason that I left Brighton and came up to Raynham so I think schools that um, embrace a mixed attainment approach to maths teaching are I think there's more of them that there's it's an increasing number of schools that do that but it's certainly been difficult to find those schools previously but I will actively seek them out and, and work in schools that are open to that, open to moving towards that. Um, yeah. Got, got it. And what about streaming? Is is that any better than setting or is that even worse? Um, I'm not really sure. I think that if you're talking about parallel classes, so rather than having set one down to set six, if you have parallel classes, where you've got like, yeah, maybe two top sets, two middle sets, two bottom sets. I think that's better than rigid setting. Um, and I think it can be helpful for schools that want to move away from sets. Um, but I'd still be concerned about how that band or that, that stream, how, how 
teachers and students might be influenced by their awareness that they're in that band or stream. So I think it's still important to kind of make sure that whichever band or stream they're in, they still have access to the full curriculum and the, the full set of resources that students in, in other streams have access to. Yes, no, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm reading Cleverlands by Lucy Crean, and, and Lucy's going to come on the podcast, which I can't wait for. And a lot of those high-performing um, regions that Lucy visits tend to have mixed attainment classes. But one thing I noticed um, in Canada was a fairly common practice of streaming up where they'll, uh, some schools will have mixed attainment classes um, across the board, but they'll have a top set that's got the highest attaining students in there for, for say, mathematics. And maybe it's got 20 students in or 15 students in. Would that be something you would be in favour of, Helen, or, or should those students still be within the, the, the mixed attainment classes? Um, so, again, it's tricky to answer because I think that as so as leading a department, you have to look at, at, at your school situation and what is appropriate for your students and your teachers. And if and this is what I mean by I would want to work in schools that are moving towards mixed attainment um, and a st um, a mixed attainment style of teaching yes. so I'm not saying that every class has to be completely mixed attainment I think that's the ideal so ideally I wouldn't want to see it a top set but if there's a justification for that if if the teachers are not experienced enough at delivering mixed attainment lessons to be able to challenge the higher attainers enough then, then maybe it has a place but I would still have the same concerns about if you take out those top attaining students and put them in a top set, does that mean that you're then removing some of the challenge from the lessons for the other students? Are you kind of limiting what they do because they're not in the top set? And equally, are you moving on some students too quickly because they're in that top set? Are you not taking into account their different start points for different topics like we've just talked about? So, so for me, it's not the ideal situation, but equally, I think that you have to... Um, be flexible around the situation with, in which you work and the pupils' previous experiences and the teachers' previous experiences. Well, let me let me play devil's advocate again just for a second. Let, let's go back to that um, the sequences uh, series of lessons you, you talked about at the start, Helen. You mentioned that on that learning journey, you um, potentially at the top end, there's um, quadratic sequences. So, say for example, you've got a year group and maybe you've got five or six uh, year seven classes, and within each of those classes, you've got two or three kids who potentially could get to the stage where they can find the nth term of quadratic sequences and, and do all sorts of, of stuff with those. Is it not going to be better for those students to be taught that together in a lesson that's focused on quadratic sequences where all the teacher's effort and attention is focused on that specific concept and that specific topic, as opposed to trying to support those kids with it, whilst at the same time you're trying to support kids who are still on the nth term some kids who are still describing and continuing um simple number-based sequences if that makes sense well i suppose I, i'd want to answer that in two parts so i kind of think that we for, from from in, i want i have the attitude of the opinion that every child within my year seven class could potentially get to that point so i right. don't want to start start off teaching a unit by deciding that some students are never going to access that yes. i want to assume that they could all access that 
And and again, I, I'm not sure why it has to be that explanations are considered better if they're to all students all at the same time. So I think that I can explain quadratic sequences to students and allow them focus on that and give them the time to focus on that. And it doesn't matter that other students in the class are doing something different. I don't think that prevents that from happening. I guess I'm almost with you, but I think I'd argue it's surely it's harder, though, right? Surely it's it's harder if you're trying to explain. I know we keep saying quadratic sequences, but let's let's say you're trying to explain quadratic sequences to, to two kids and two year sevens. And that's it's a fairly tr tricky thing. And it, it would possibly involve a lengthy explanation or a worked example or a discussion and so on. That's going to take up a significant portion of your of your time. And what about the other kids at this point who, who kind of need help and support, who've got the regulatory court cards and are asking for help? I guess that that's my struggle. But you're linking that back to an inquiry lesson. And at that the, the point where we're looking at the very top end of the learning journey, they wouldn't necessarily, well, they wouldn't still be engaged in an inquiry at that point. So, but they still, the might need, they still might need help, though, right? The, the other yeah, kids yeah, still... they, they will still need help. But I'm still not quite clear about, for, it's hard for me to get my head around what you what you mean really so because <laughs> um, I, I would give them those students that help and and like I said they, they can get help from each other as well and they're not all going to need help at the same time and if there is some students that need help on the same thing so there's five or six students in the class that are all needing help with the same thing and they're spread out around the classroom I'll call them over and I'll talk to them as a little group and, and then I'll send them back to their tables. And then when other students on their table are moving to that point where they're at that point in the lesson, and they need help with that. There's already someone on their table who can explain it to them. So it's um, I'm not. I, yeah, I'm not quite clear about where the difficulty lies, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I guess I guess what, what I'm trying to argue. And again, maybe it's maybe it's just me uh, the. I always think, well, my instinct is that if I've got a tricky concept to to explain, I, I kind of want all my effort and focus to be on that one concept. And I would find it difficult then to then switch my attention to, right, OK, so this group of children are struggling with um, linear equations, uh, sorry, linear sequences and terms. But but now I'm going back and I'm, I'm helping these, these students out with the quadratics. I, I just... I guess I'm just, I think it's, I guess I'm just so used to topic focused lessons where this lesson or this, this, this one or two lessons, we are going to be doing a specific skill or concept. I think it's just, it's just alien to me. And I, I think I would find it incredibly difficult to, to be, to be juggling different topics and concepts within the same lesson. Does that make sense? Can you, can you see yeah, the, no, why I, I think, find it hard? To... Yeah. And I think that's what, I think that's what I was trying to say earlier about it's not necessarily harder, but it feels harder if it's not yes. what you're used to. Yes, I think that's exactly it. Yeah. So so for me, when I was training to be a teacher, um, well, I started that process at that very first school I worked in with Andrew and, and they taught mixed attainment there. So although I've since then I've moved to schools that set from very early on in my teaching practice, I was used to a mixed attainment setting so it's not and it, 
I'm not saying that it's completely easy and in every sure. lesson runs extremely smoothly. I'm not saying that, but I think that the the the, the hurdles that you come across when you're teaching a mixed attainment class, and there will be hurdles. I don't think that that outweighs the benefits that you get from having mixed attainment classes. So I'm I'm prepared to have that level of difficulty or that challenge to myself for the like the bigger aim if you see what I mean and 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 maybe life would be a bit easier for me if there was sets I'm not sure that it would but maybe it would <laughs> but that's not for me that's not the the way that I want to approach teaching for all of those reasons that we discussed for for what that sometimes says to students about what we think they're capable of achieving yes. and those 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 ex, those low, lowering of those expectations that we have that um so for, for me, that the danger of that happening is is more is is a greater concern than the danger that I may struggle to deliver an explanation of two different types within the same yes. lesson. I, I I think I think you're right, Helen. And I think in preparation for this interview, I've been reading everything I can. But what I've also been doing is I've I've been back into into my school and just listening to conversations just because I knew I was interviewing you. And I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with this this idea of teacher expectation and the damaging impact that teacher expectation can can have on students, particularly if I have low expectations of a student and I might not know I have. But I was just over overhearing conversations within our maths department and it'd be things like they've done quite well for my seven set threes or there's no way my set twos will be able to cope with this this is a set one lesson and things like oh it was it was fine for your class but there's no way my class will be able to cope with that and it, it's it's things like that that I think you're right I think for me anyway mixed attainment teaching is harder but that's fine I can, I can cope with that if I'm convinced that it's it's going to be beneficial for, for my students and I think for me almost the biggest seller in it is it almost removes the ability for teachers to form those kind of damaging expectations to the same extent would that be something you'd agree with yeah c c completely I mean you can't if you have a mixed attainment group and, and you know that they're a mixed attainment group you can't have preconceived ideas about what they're going to be capable of achieving um, because they're all going to be different so so yeah so that kind of it, it removes that doesn't it i think yeah. there's there's still potentially a danger of, of teachers trying to identify who they perceive as their lower attainers yes, and, then, of course. and then limiting their learning which is why for me differentiation is a really important part of how i deliver a mixed attainment lesson but differentiation can would be so wrong if it meant giving students you're going to do this task and you're going to do this task and and taking that um again putting that limit on what they do that's when it becomes a dangerous thing and and i don't wouldn't differentiate like that and don't differentiate like that um i do sometimes redirect students if they have selected inappropriately <laughs> like like, yes. like you spoke about but i want the start point i want i want them as much as possible to be self-selecting and making those choices making making an informed choice and the right choice for themselves because that empowers them as learners and that's that's actually a life skill that's going to help them forever like for the rest of their lives as well so can, I, can I I 
Yeah, no, I I, I agree with you, Howard. And I, I wonder, cause again, I've 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 taught not much mixed entertainment, and I I've I've been open and honest on this podcast and in in my writings that I find it I find it very hard. Would you have mixed entertainment right through to year eleven, or is it the case that I see in a lot of schools that have mixed entertainment, it's kind of year seven, eight, and nine, and then there's then it tends to kind of lean more towards setting whenever we get closer to GCSE. What what's your view? Um, yeah, so again, that's that's sort of quite tricky to answer in a way. So, so my ideal is to have mixed attainment all the way up to key stage four, but I don't have that in in my current department at the moment. And and it goes back to what we were talking about before: is that you, you have to be realistic about the situation that you are in. And and I think that students have to learn how to learn in a mixed attainment classroom, as much as teachers have to learn how to teach successfully in a mixed entertainment classroom so in schools where i've seen it introduced most effectively so where you're going from complete setting to mixed entertainment where i think that's most effective is when you take it a year group at a time so you start with it in year seven and then you you kind of roll that out into year eight and into year nine um i think that the difficulty with for me the reason that we don't have complete mixed entertainment at the moment in my school is because um, our students haven't had our key stage four students haven't had that experience from early enough. Yes. So, so what we have is as as mixed as I as I feel we can comfortably get it at the moment, which is two tier. So they're completely mixed in seven, eight, and nine, and they start their GCSE in year nine. So they're completely mixed in those three year groups. In year ten and eleven, they ha- they are now either in foundation classes or higher classes. Um, which is not the ideal that that's not what I want to be the permanent situation. But at this point in time, that's what's right for our students in our department. And it's about the fact that for some of those students, their experience of learning mathematics up to this point hasn't been consistently good. And there's some quite big gaps in their knowledge. And there's an awareness that for those for our students to achieve the best possible results they can in the exam, we still need to be doing a certain amount of exam prep, which is not how I'd want to be teaching. I, I want to feel yes. that if you teach successfully in year seven, eight and nine, by the time they get to 10 and 11, you're not chasing those exam grades that, you know, the foundations are there and, and you can still teach maths the way it should be taught and not teach as much to the test. But for us and for our students, there is still an element of that we do have to teach to the test to a certain extent. And that's made more that's facilitated more easily by having higher and foundation classes. Um, long term, like I say, that's not where I would still want to be, but that's where we are currently. But there are schools that I know do successfully teach mixed attainment at Key Stage 4. Um, at one of the first mixed attainment mass conferences, Zeb Friedman talked about her experiences teaching completely mixed with Year 11. And at the last conference, um, Kate Gladstone and Paul McGar were talking about their experiences having mixed attainment at year 10. So I, I fully believe that it's possible and achievable. Um, I think that um, because of all the things that we've talked about, of all the things that's, that make it challenging at times for teachers and students, I think that at Key Stage 4, that you have to be ready for it. The students and the teachers have yes. to be ready for it. But I, I still feel that I wouldn't describe what we do as setting because we certainly don't have sets one to six, but we do have foundation classes and we do have higher classes. But within that, all the children have the same learning journey. So any year t- 10 class, whether you're higher or foundation, you're given the same learning journey at the start of a unit of work. You're given the same 
resources during those lessons and you're given the same assessment task at the end of the unit of work but there's just this acknowledgement that um so to get from the grade one to the grade nine and, and the skills that we have as a team of teachers and, and the skills that our students have as learners, it, it helps to facilitate it at the moment to have just the foundation and the higher as separate classes. But some students within a foundation class that are making good progress along their learning journey may move on to those tasks that are sort of more typical for the higher paper. Do, do you see what I mean? I do. I do. And I wonder if, if I can ask, so, so let's take one of your um, higher GCSE classes in year 11. And again, this may, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating discussion, this Helen, because uh, it may be hard for you to understand what, what, my, what my problem is with this. And I'm hoping you, you can help me here with this. So I can understand for a topic like you've described at the start, like sequences, where there's, there's quite a wide range of things that can be done within sequences starting with continuing number sequences right up to quadratics so a topic like sequences i can i can i can see that working well in a mixed attainment class because kids can um, enter it at different levels and so on but what about something like um, just off top of my head some kind of like further trigonometry where you've got sine rule cosine rule half a b sine c something like that where traditionally and again people will hate me for saying this but traditionally i wouldn't probably teach that to a lower setted higher tier class because i would rather focus on the fundamentals making sure they're fine with all the, the fraction stuff solving equations possibly some quadratics and so on Traditionally, I think a topic like further trigonometry will be something that's reserved for your top one, two and three sets potentially on um, on higher tier. So if you've got your mixed attainment year 11 class, what are you doing with a, a topic like this? Are you are you giving every child the opportunity to access it? And, and if that's the case, surely some kids are going to just that's not going to be the most pleasant experience for them because that's some quite hard maths, if, if that makes sense. But I think it, it's the same approach that I'd use at Key Stage 3. So they they have their learning journeys and, and, and we've looked at their start points and, and they're given a choice of what they're working on. And the explanations that I give to them might come at different times in the lesson. Right. And there'll be a lot of class discussion where they do build upon what each other are saying. Um, so it, it's, it's still the same approach. Um, so not, would, yeah, would, just, would this be, sorry, Helen, would this be, would so it would, that wouldn't be kind of a standalone unit like further trigonometry would that come part of say a tr pythagoras and trigonometry unit where the, the sine and cosine rule was just kind of at the end of the unit in the way quadratic sequences was at the end of the, the but sequences that, that's unit. the difference I, we don't put it at the end of a unit so it would <laughs> oh sorry end of the sorry i meant end, end of the learning sorry end of the learning journey i meant sorry um yeah, I mean, in, yeah, I suppose it would it would appear at the end of a learning journey. We still talk to students about the fact that actually there is no end to the learning journey because it's got this arrow <laughs> yes. that goes on into infinity. But, so, but yeah, it might be the last section that's on the learning journey. And then if they're comfortable with that and they can do that, then we'll move them on even further. But yeah, so it might appear at the end of a learning journey, but some students will be um, accessing that in, in, in the first few lessons of a unit of work because they're secure and and, and confident with all the steps leading up to that point other students might never get there if they are if they need the time that if they need all of the lessons for that unit of work if they need all of that time to be spent um practicing and understanding and getting to grips with a concept lower down the learning journey then they they may they won't ever necessarily move on to those tasks for the, for the top end of the learning journey yeah 
got got it right. I'm 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 going to try one more time with this one, Helen, to to see if I can. Am I not answering you properly? No, Sorry. You, you are no, no. It's, you are answering perfectly, but I'm I'm going to try and make my argument one more time. But for this um, kind of a whole class teaching approach to these particular topics. So, but bear with me with this one. See see if this makes any sense whatsoever. So let's take something like sine and sine and cosine rule. Um, for something like that, if I've got a mix. What I would like to do there is I would like to, um, on the interactive whiteboard, I would have something like GeoGebra up and I would show the kids when we manipulate different vertices on a triangle and I would have a table up there showing how all the lengths and the angles change. And it would be a really kind of hopefully well planned out um, kind of demonstration. There will be opportunities for discussion and all that kind of thing going on and to, to really get them to understand the, the, the fundamentals behind the sine and cosine rule and, and, and so on. But I, again, if, if we go back to this mixed attainment setting where you've we've potentially got a unit of work on on trigonometry and we've got some students who are still working on kind of Sokotoa or Pythagoras or whatever. Do I still have that opportunity to do this kind of demonstration in the front of the class for the kids who are ready to do sine and cosine rule? Because I can understand that I could sit, get them in a little group and stuff, but I, I want this to be a big thing. I want this to be a 20 minute demonstration, but, discussion part of the lesson. Does that make sense? That's what I, I think yeah, that's what but, I'm struggling with. What am I doing with the other kids whilst, whilst this is happening? Well, there's two different things. So first of all, I don't necessarily think that students should be excluded from that kind of explanation right, or discussion okay. just because they're okay. not fully able to grasp it. So I think that actually it can be very interesting for students to, to be listening to things that are just beyond their level of understanding. But um, if that's not the case, they can be doing something else. So I don't see why... Um, some students in your class can't can't be working quietly on whatever task they need to be working on whilst you're giving that discussion to most of the class or having that discussion with most of the class. Okay. It doesn't. I mean, you can't. Yeah, they shouldn't be in the room when it happens. I don't. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just saying that if it's, I can I can understand it for. I guess what I'm saying is. It depends what those kids are doing, basically, because if this is going to be a 20, 25, even half an hour kind of segment of a lesson, I just but, feel a bit bad that I'm we, almost but, abandoning the other well, students. Well, don't, don't abandon them. Plan for that. <laughs> but, be, be, be aware that you're going to want to spend 25 minutes talking to quite yes. a large group of your students and have something planned for the other students. So it might be that at the end of the previous lesson, you've set those other students up with a task and you've said to them, look, at the start of next lesson, I'm going to be going through this with, with the, with the yes, rest of the class yes. and I want you to be working on this while I'm doing that. I want you to be working on it independently. I want you to be working on it quietly and I'll be talking to the rest of the class. I, I don't... Um, okay. Yeah. Does that? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I can't promise I won't bring it up again later on, Helen. I'm, I'm de determined here, but no, that's you, you. You've beat me on that one as well. I'll, I'll get. I'll give you that one. Um, can I just ask you one more thing about mixed attainment, just in general? Um, yeah. And then, then we're going to dive into the specifics. What's um, what, what's what's parents' preference on this? What, do you get any feedback? from parents do they do they prefer the kids do they wish the kids were set it are they are they happy and particularly what i'm interested in is is the two extremes if you've got a child who perhaps at primary school was was absolutely flying in maths what do the parents of that child think about them being in mixed attainment and, and how about the kids who who really need support who, who are really struggling what, what, what's the parents perception there Okay, so um, so I think this, this parents in my experience the parents are most likely to be concerned about mixed attainment 
are the parents of the higher attaining students because they've also got this sort of misconception that their child cannot learn as successfully in a class with less able students. So and I kind of think that with that, the only real answer to that is to demonstrate to them consistently that their child can learn and can make as good progress. And um, that's why I find the learning journeys really helpful, actually, because it makes the progress visible to those students and, and they see that they are making progress and they see. Um, I think sometimes they do need to feel that they are doing something different from everyone else in the class and that they, you know, they're being challenged in a yes. different way. So and, and I think but the only way really to win parents and students over with that is to demonstrate to them that it that it does work and that will win them over. I think. One of the things that I find that I found previously, and again, it's only going from my own experience, but one of the things that I found interesting is that actually when you take higher attaining students and put them in a mixed attainment class, they actively seek out the challenge in ways that they might not do in a setted class. And I think that sometimes what happens is students, if they're positioned in a top set and they know that they're in a top set and their parents know that they're in a top set, sometimes they're just happy with that. And the fact that their top set lesson might not challenge them doesn't concern them because they're in the top set and they're really good at maths and they're supposed yes, to find course. it easy. But as soon as you put that student in a mixed attainment group, they're going to question if they're not feeling challenged. They're going to come to you as a teacher and say, this is too easy for me. Yes. And that's really actually that's really important for their learning. And I'm not convinced that that does always happen as much if they're in the top set. I think sometimes they're OK with it being too easy for them because they've got that security of knowing they're in the top set. So I do think that actually students, um, yeah, they, some students will seek out the challenge more and are more concerned about whether or not you're challenging them. And that can only be a good thing. If they're questioning the teacher and saying, I want more challenge, I want to be challenged more, that's got to be a good thing for their learning. Um uh, yeah, doesn't. Yeah, no, I'm I'm 100 percent with you there on that one. Can I ask? You, you mentioned at the start the uh, start of a unit that you'd um, do a kind of mini assessment, and the kids will get the same assessment at the end. Do, no, they don't, they get a different oh, oh, assessment at the end. The assessment covers the same learning journey, but it's completely ah. different from the assessment they have at the start. Completely different. Oh no, sorry, sorry. I mean, not the same. As in, each kid gets the same assessment at the end. Sorry, oh, sorry. Yeah, they have the same assessment task as each yes. other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, can I ask, are homeworks the same then? Um, we use Hegarty Maths for homework. So what we will say to the students, so if I'm setting them tasks, I'll set a range of tasks in my class and say to them they right. have to pick one that's appropriate. Or I might say to them, look at your learning journey, what do you need to be focusing on? Go and, and do that on Hecate Maths, which is, um, again, that's that's a really useful tool for mixed attainment classes because it gives them the opportunity to go and learn something outside of the lesson and bring that knowledge back into the next lesson with them, which um, goes some way to helping address some of those issues you've talked about, about what if you want to move students on to certain different things. That's another tool that you can use to help move them on or to give them that extra support with something they're still struggling with got it okay helen can i just ask you um you, you've, you've talked a lot about um inquiries here do you, what are your other kind of go-to resources for for your mixed attainment lessons is there anywhere else that you go to for i'm thinking kind of activities or those kind of things that lend themselves well to discussions that you've talked about where, where do you go to get those first do you have any other favorite sources yeah, um, for sort of the multiple entry point task, there's um, Enrich, is has obviously um, got some really good ones. There's um, Don Stewart's Median website. There's the um, Open Middle's got some really nice um, 
problems for students to look at there. And then I think for lessons where students are working on different sets of questions or different tasks, I'd probably go to the same sort of sets of resources that people with setted classes use. Just the only difference is that there would be a, a bigger range of them in, in a mixed attainment class. I see. Where, where, where would they be? Again, because I'm always on the lookout just in case there's something something I may have missed. Where, where would you get your actual questions from? Um. Oh, I, <laughs> I'm just going to think off the top of my head now. <laughs> Sorry. There's loads of different websites that I go to. So um, Resourceaholic, um, uh, MathsPad we're using a bit of at the moment. Um, I still look at stuff on test resources occasionally, not as much now that they're um, charging yes, for it. <laughs> There's um, MathSpot. Um, oh, just well, just no, all, this, all this, the things that I suppose math teachers do go to for. I'll tell you what's fascinating for me for me about this, Helen, because they, they would be some of, well, in fact, you've, you've literally named all my kind of favourite go to um, places for, for resources. And yet I'm, I'm sensing that we teach in fairly different, fairly different ways. Certainly I've I've kind of moved more towards this model of kind of whole class teaching and so on, more so in the last couple of years. So I wonder if you were suddenly and I know you wouldn't want to, but if you were put into a school where they were setted and you, you had to teach there for whatever reason, would you teach any differently or, or would your lessons still look the same, do you think? Yeah, um, my lessons would still look the same. Yes. <laughs> I kind of, uh, I remember I was at a school that had very rigid setting, really rigid setting. I didn't stay there very long for that reason. <laughs> and um, they used to move, it was so rigid that every time there was a test and there'd be like a big exam every sort of term, every big term, they'd then move children up and down between yes. the sets based on their, so it's very rigid setting. And I had a lesson observation there and part of the feedback was that I, differentiated too much i over differentiated <laughs> and that it was a setted class did, did i not know that and um yeah that was my feedback <laughs> so, so um i would teach in the same way yeah that is interesting and that is possibly the worst feedback i've ever heard so that's that's very interesting that. <laughs> i was a bit confused about how over differentiation can be a thing but apparently it was a problem so <laughs> that is that is i'll tell you what just again just thinking on that because differentiation is something I'm, I'm a little obsessed with and I've, I've spoke to lots of lots of people on the podcast about this i i'm going to say some controversial that you, you probably won't agree with helen here and i've, I've, just, I've just thought of it now but you seem to seem like the perfect person to, to discuss this with I reckon that I maybe, if I ever did over differentiate, it was at the start um, of a of a top unit or a, co a concept or something. I would make assumptions that kids understood things to um, more than they actually did, or sometimes less than they actually did. So let me refer back to my year 11s that I mentioned. So a couple of years ago, year 11 class, so I had a girl in there called Josie, and Josie was by far the best mathematician in there. So I would go into topics assuming Josie already had like a really good foundational, solid level of knowledge, and I'd be looking to push her on, push her on, push her on, push her on. But that then made it quite hard for Josie to ever tell me, actually, sir, um, I, I don't quite get this because she had a bit of an aura about her that she got everything and I expected her to get everything and so on. So now I tend to not differentiate quite as much when I'm first introducing something, even if that means for some students I'm kind of holding them back a little bit. And then the differentiation then comes in with the amount of time that the students spend on various tasks and activities. And some kids will go quicker through it and get onto more challenging stuff. Some kids will need more time and more support and so on. So I think if I ever did, if, if over differentiation is ever a thing, 
I think I certainly did it at the start of um, introducing something for the first time, whereas I think the most effective form of differentiation comes later in through um, the development and progression through a topic or concept. Firstly, does that make any sense? And w w would you agree um, with it, that at all? It does make sense. But I think possibly what you're describing is when you're when differentiation is done to students. So again, is it like that you were saying, this is what I want you to do, Joe, right. I want you to work on this task. And again, that's where it's so important that there's an element of choice. And um, if, 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 did you say her name was Josie? If, yes, if she yes. was, if she was um, out of a lack of confidence choosing tasks that were too easy for her because she just wanted to get them right, then that's the point for you to jump in as a teacher and go, look, I, I want you to try and, and go for this level of challenge and, and it, it may be confusing for you, you may make mistakes along the way, but I think you'll get there if, if you persevere with it. But I think if you go in and give her that and make that her start point without, and, and she feels that she can't tell you that it's too hard, and differentiation has been done to her and not for her. Yes, I, I think I agree with that. And th th this, again, relates to a question that we had on Twitter that I put out last night when I, when I told people I was interviewing you. And that was the role of formative assessment, because I would assume that formative assessment plays an even more important role in mixed attainment classes than it would in setted classes, because both for you as a teacher, you want to get a sense of different students' understanding and I would argue that there's going to be a wider range of, of, of understanding w within a mixed attainment class. So is formative assessment even more important for you as a teacher to get a sense of what kids know and what kids don't know? So you can you can help help them and support them. And, and like you said, suggest activities for them to, to have a go at if, if you get the feeling that they've selected the wrong ones. But also, is it important to use formative assessment effectively so that the kids themselves get a better sense of, of what they know, what they don't know? And I guess my final part to this ridiculously long question is what does formative assessment look like in your lessons? Oh, wow. OK, that is a really long question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so formative assessment is really important. And what it looks like is it takes many different forms. Sure. And that includes for us quite a lot of it is, is around student self-assessing. So so formative assessment, it's, it's kind of it starts with that process of the learning journey and, and being able to answer those questions and identify their start point. So it starts with that. But it's always it's also a recognition that just because they can answer one uh, one question successfully doesn't mean that they necessarily completely understand. So building upon that is, is getting them to explain and reason and justify and problem solve. And then um, there's so over the series of lessons, that's what we'll be asking students to do in a lesson. Um, at the end of every lesson, um, time provided, it's not like it's not every single lesson, but we try as much as possible at the end of a lesson to get students to reflect um, using something we call the green pen page. And, and they go back to their learning journey and next to it, they record what they've learned in the lesson, what methods they've used, how they've used them, or they might talk about the meaning of a keyword that they know now that they didn't know before. So we're getting them to reflect on, on, on what can they explain now that they couldn't explain previously um, or what question can they now answer from the learning journey that they couldn't answer previously so getting them to think about where they've got to in that process um, so we use a lot of student self-reflection and a lot of um, reflection tools and, and and getting them to really think about how well they understand and and kind of getting that idea that that's different from necessarily just being able to answer a question correctly it's, it's, can you explain how you did that to someone else Yes. And then we've got the um, end of unit assessment task where they are assessed for fluency, problem solving and reasoning for each level of difficulty. 
and um and then there's there's a challenge question that comes into that as well um we'll do um self-assessment in a lesson using mini whiteboards for whole class questioning for example um there's the questions that you ask them as you're circulating the room so so all of that is really important um yeah that seems a bit yeah. <laughs> no, I think you've you've answered you've answered that perfectly. And can I ask can I ask there, Helen? You, you talked about the importance there of well, firstly, kind of student self selection, but also um, self reflection. And again, may, maybe this is just me, but I find that something that the kids struggle with this this kind of ability to reflect on their learning. And it's it, it's quite like it's it's quite a high level of thinking kids need to do on that. And you, you, you've, you've rightly distinguished it between being able to do something and being able to, to explain it and judge how well you understand it and so on. And um, how do you get kids good at doing that? Um, it is, it is just practice. It's like when we first introduce them to learning journeys, they're not sure how to use them, but they become better at it over time. Um, in the early stages where we're asking them to um, write a sentence or, or a paragraph about what they've learned, we might give them sentence starters or a, a writing scaffold for that. Or we might give them examples that they can use and then as they become better at doing it for themselves, they'll generate their own examples. So they'll they'll come up with their own type of question that they can answer now they couldn't answer before but it's that modeling it and and providing the um the scaffold when they need it i see i see and i i guess another kind of cornerstone of of this way of teaching that's going to be important is 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 the ability for for students to to have kind of productive mathematical conversations between themselves whether it's kind of working in groups or when it's having this kind of whole class discussion at the start of an inquiry where you're collecting together ideas and, and observations and so on. So again, that's something that I found kids are kids struggle with initially. So, so how do we get kids better at that, having these kind of productive, positive mathematical conversations between each other? Um, I think it's, it's a similar thing that you have to model it and you have to set out your expectations of what that looks like. Um, I think really importantly, though, it's creating that culture in the classroom where they're not afraid to ask questions and make contributions. So they're not worried about asking a question that's deemed a a silly question or giving an answer that's wrong. And actually, for me, quite a lot of that culture has been created through using inquiries because um, it changes the focus from the questions being something the teacher does. So like the teacher questions the students and the students either answer successfully or don't successfully. It's, it flips that around and it's the questions, the starting questions, the initial questions are coming from them. And um, when when they engage in that process regularly, they, they it no longer becomes something that makes them anxious. They're so used to various students in the class, including the higher attainers occasionally, um, getting a getting an answer wrong or asking a question that someone else knows the answer to that that fear of that is 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 um, eradicated in a way and and I think that's something else that is possibly a benefit of mixed attainment classrooms is that students aren't fearful of maintaining their hierarchy because because yes. it is a mixed attainment classroom I think you know um Again, it's, I have not that much experience of, of, of teaching sets, but where I have taught um, top sets previously, for, you know, where, where students are, um, they're fearful of losing their position in the top set, of not being deemed as clever as everyone else in that class. And that, that sometimes restricts their um, willingness to ask questions or, or to... Um, contribute put themselves out there in a way that someone else might say oh I can't believe you just said that or laugh at their answer 
Whereas in in a mixed attainment classroom, students are, are they become used to that a range of different questions and contributions and different levels of sophistication being shared, and and they're less self conscious about it, less worried about it. I, I see, and. I mentioned before the idea from Canada of this this kind of top set, but the rest mixed ability. Just just to flip it on its head, are there arguments for a bot for a, a kind of a bottom set and the rest mixed ability? And the reason I say this, and it's particularly pertinent now when we're recording this um, kind of mid Feb twenty eighteen, and there's a bit, it's all kicking off on Twitter about the importance of times tables and kids kids being fluent and being able to recall number facts automatically and so on. And and I've I've made the argument um, uh, previously in the podcast that I believe that ability is re- really really important for kids to access some of the the higher level problem solving and, and some of the topics that are, that are dependent on on that kind of sense of number and being being fluent in it but is there a case is there an argument for a bottom set in the sense that unless kids are secure in these number number based topics and, and these skills they simply can't access for example that some of the sequence stuff that you discuss with the year sevens or would you still have it true mixed ability across all of year seven yeah um i I don't have bottom sets. Um, I haven't created that kind of um, group in the school in, in which I work. I know that some of the other workshop presenters at, at the conference do have what they call a nurture group. And yes. again, that's what works for them and for their department. And I'm not going to criticise that. I think the reason that I choose not to go down that route is that um, I, I would still, again, be concerned about the limits that you are placing on learning and the assumptions that teachers are going to make about students within that nurture group. And I think you're right that some students need to be focusing on entirely different things, but I still maintain that they can do that in the same class and room environment as other students working on different things. Um, We use a lot of um, manipulatives in our lessons. And so things like multilink or fraction tiles or um, 3D shapes, anything like that. Um, And they're not... I don't just, I don't choose, like, like with the differentiation, I don't choose which students use those. They're on they're on the table in the middle of each table for any students in the class to pick up and use and, and support their learning in that way. Um, so I think, I think really what would concern me most about creating a, a, a bottom set is, is just the, the, um, what that might do to students' ideas and teachers' ideas about what they're capable of achieving. Yes, I, I agree. And uh, again, I've, I, I admitted in, in the book I, I wrote and also on, the, on this podcast that I've struggled to teach bottom sets. And I think it's because you, you inevitably go in with those those expectations, those low expectations. And I, I find it hard. But but can I ask you again, just on a, on a practical level, if you've got kids within your year sevens who struggle with times tables or basic addition and so on. And let's say, for example, they're in that sequence of lessons on sequences that you describe would you kind of have work up your sleeve for those students and how would you how would you kind of get that work to them if that makes sense how would you suggest that actually they would be better off working on that kind of stuff because it's going to be better for them in the long run than trying to continue with this inquiring sequences if that makes sense so yeah i don't think that i would do that i think that the sequences inquiry is accessible at levels for even your lowest attaining students so i'd want them to participate in that but I'd have an awareness that there's also topics that they need to be working on. And, and maybe that would be through 
um, intervention outside of the lesson through right. different types of homework or maybe there will be certain parts in certain lessons where I'll ask them to do something differently from you know something completely different from everyone else but that doesn't mean that they're not um, the majority of the time engaged in the same sorts of activities as other students in the class I so see. I think it is just about knowing your students really well I think that the very when you're talking about students who really struggle with the most basic concepts who maybe not got much number recognition or don't know number bonds to 10 um, so talking about really because that, that those kind of students are mentioned on Twitter and, and people bring that up what do you do with students like that and, yes. and I think that Yes, th th those students do exist in our mixed attainment classrooms, but they are, um, they, they, we're not swamped with them, are we? There's, there's not many students that are working at such a low level of prior knowledge. And most schools do have support for students like that in some form or other. So, um, and, and it's, you, it's, it's being aware of, of, of how to access that support and how, how to make sure that, um, things are happening for those students outside of the actual math lesson as as well as supporting them with what's going on inside the math lesson yeah i, I, I think i think i agree but again again i think i think it goes back to something we, we discussed earlier if, if we take and this is this is a helen this is a classic cliche that you hear banded about about um, mixed attainment classes that it is you always end up teaching to the middle and you can't stretch the highest attaining students and you can't support the, the the lowest attaining students and just to kind of take this argument on one one step further the it's it's fine how how can you give enough support to those kids within lesson and of course they can have intervention outside of lesson and so on but surely <clears throat> those kids are going to get more support within lesson um, in a so-called bottom set than they would in oh, a stability and also sorry oh, just 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 to end the argument and also to take the other extreme and um, surely the kids who at the kind of highest end are going to get more tailored support in a top set for the challenges that they need to need to encounter to, to push them on further than they are in a mixed ability now i'm not saying i agree with this but that that is an argument right that you hear okay um, so what, what well would i would think to? that's a, a myth um, so <laughs> sure. to start with to start with the argument about how students get more support in a bottom set yes, so yes. um remember right back at the start of the interview and i talked about how i'd, I'd got a job as a teaching assistant attached yes. to the math department and when i first started there that until andrew arrived they taught in sets and um I was a teaching assistant in the bottom sets. And when Andrew arrived and talked about mixed attainment teaching, I thought, well, that will never work. What about my students? What yes. about my students that are in the bottom set that need to be in the bottom set? And actually, as soon as those students are in um, mixed attainment groups, as a teaching assistant, I realised that actually they get a lot more in individual help in a classroom situation like that than when all 20 of them are together in a bottom set with a TA and a teacher. So I think the idea that you give them less help if they're in a mixed attainment class than you would if they were all together, I'm not quite sure how that works because putting all of your most needy students together, I'm not sure that how's that a solution. There's still but only one teacher in the room. I and, agree, but yeah. what, happens, what happens if they have similar needs? What happens if, for example, you've identified that times tables are an issue or number bonds to, to 10 or 20 are an issue? Surely it's better to have a lesson focused on that with all the kids that need that as opposed to five minutes within a lesson when you've also got needs of, of other students, if that makes sense. But see, I, I don't... <laughs> 
I mean, I don't think my school's a unique school, and, and I've taught in a lot of comprehensive schools. I don't think there are many students that don't have number bonds to 10 by the time they get to secondary school. I don't think you're talking about a whole class full of students. So I think what happens is that you create a bottom set, which will have maybe five students like that yes. in it, but also... 15 other students that are working far beyond that level right. but they're all they're all still together in in what is officially a bottom set but like we've discussed before the range of attainment within that group is still actually quite massive and then what you've also got the problem of then is that by creating a bottom set like, like we've discussed you've lowered their expectations you've lowered the teacher yes. expectations and actually you start to find in those bottom sets issues around behavior that have prevented attainment so you end up with um, a whole, I don't think that in a bottom set you get 20 students that have exactly the same needs. I, don't, I just don't think that's realistically what happens. So, yeah, I, and I, I think, going, sorry, going back no, no, to what you were saying about um, highest attaining students, um, uh, like teaching to the middle, I think was how you started, yes, it, wasn't it? Yes, teaching absolutely. to the middle. I actually think that in a mixed attainment class, you're less likely to teach to the middle because you're aware that you've got a full range of students in your class and you have to plan for that. And teaching a setted class, isn't the danger more likely to be that you teach to the middle and, and you're going with this, they can all do the same thing, they can all um, learn at the same speed. So I think, if anything, the danger is, is there more in in a in a setted class and a mixed attainment class. I think in a mixed attainment class, you, you have to avoid that happening, to avoid teaching to the middle, you have to plan differently. You have to be aware of their starting points and you have to have activities and resources that um, provide support and challenge. And I don't think that just by trying to group students together and saying these students are all the same, I don't think you eradicate the problem of teaching to the middle. I I think I certainly agree with that. I'm, I'm going to go. We, we, we've kind of been a little bit controversial so far. I'm going to go a bit further here, Helen. Um, what's your take on this? So we know as maths teachers ourselves that the, the subject's in a, a little bit of a crisis in the sense that it's, it's there's a recruitment issue and, and probably more so a retainment issue. And I know that whenever we advertise for, for, for maths jobs, um, sometimes we, we simply can't can't fulfil them. And I, and I don't know if that's just our area, but I get a sense that it, it's, it's quite hard um, to find good maths teachers um, across the country or even enough maths teachers. And I know in a lot of schools you'll get non-math specialists and um, particularly teaching at key stage three. So, so perhaps they, they're a science teacher and they do a few maths lessons or a PE teacher and they do a few maths lessons here or, here or there. Now I'm, I'm going to make the claim that um, that mixed ability teaching when done well as you've described and which i think is outstanding is hard to do and i'm going to further make the claim that for a non-math specialist or even an inexperienced teacher it is going to be easier to and i know easier isn't what we're aiming for but i'm going to argue it's going to be easier and perhaps more effective to teach a topic specific lesson to a set a setted group of students than to try and do something like you've described and um, where you've got to be really on the ball in the sense that you've got different activities up your sleeve you've got to be facilitating some pretty complex discussions you've got to be managing that really really well so in the kind of realistic setting that we're in is setting kind of the only option 
for the kind of mass teacher workforce that we've got in 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 the kind of current climate does that make any sense at all yeah, it does. And someone asked a question about that at the Mixed Atonement Maths Conference. There's a teacher there that said he had non-specialists in his department and, and how to manage that situation. So I know that it's a problem. Um, does that mean that we shouldn't be striving towards mixed atonement teaching? I, I don't think that it does. I think that... Um, you can you can you can think about the, which teachers you've got in the department and 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 which classes you're going to allocate them to. I think that there are probably very few departments that have full mixed attainment teaching for all year groups for all classes, and we've we've already touched upon that where where some schools have a bottom set or a top set or some schools have some form of banding or two tiering at key stage four. So you can think about. Um, where where you might choose to put your non-specialist teachers but I think one of the things that is a benefit of a mixed attainment class um, that in some ways helps non-specialists is that because so for example if you're teach if you have six year seven classes and they're all mixed attainment collaboratively the department is going to plan those lessons and share those lessons you're not going to have teachers going off and working on planning their own individual lesson for their own class and I think that that can be beneficial to non-specialist teachers. And I think that if you've got your non-specialist teachers teaching your mixed attainment classes, you just have to be really aware of their CPD needs and making sure that you are supporting those teachers as much as you can. And that will be through collaborative planning, but also through talking through with them um, what those lessons mean. So you can't just hand over a set of resources and say, there you go, that's what you're delivering. You have to sit down and talk to someone about what that lesson's going to look like and, and, and what you, what you, um, how that's going to go. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. And I'll, I'll tell you what's interesting about that, Helen, is what one thing that was a shock to me, um, doing this podcast was was the first time and I think it was Greg Ashman um, in his interview the first time he mentioned the idea of, of centrally planned lessons so um, whether it's head of department or another TLR holder or, or just a group of teachers essentially planning lessons that all the departments are, are going to use now Greg is very much in favor of direct explicit instruction which would be the, the kind of almost polar opposite mm. to, to, the, to the type of lessons that you've described here and yet you both seem to favor this this centrally planned lessons um is that because as a well as a as an if you had an inexperienced teacher or a non-math specialist these lessons are just too hard to plan on your own and you kind of benefit from the collective wisdom and experience of, of other teachers yeah i definitely think you benefit from the collective experience of other teachers so so we have within my department we have a set of lessons that for, for the scheme of work. So for each learning journey, there is a set of pre-planned lessons with pre-planned activities and resources that teachers can use. Now, at no point do I say that they have to use those. So any teacher within the department is is more than welcome to switch out activities and put in activities that they prefer to use themselves. And then again we discuss that as a department and decide whether we're going to make those like if they're better they're going to become part of the shared resources instead so it's not about saying you must teach um this in you must teach using this set of resources but it's having them available so that so that so that teachers aren't planning from scratch because 
in a mixed attainment lesson, you may need, well, it, it depends. It, you, you're either going to be using a multiple entry point task or you're going to be using a set of different tasks. And, and it either, in either situation, that does require more planning. And um, so it's, it's about reducing the time spent planning by doing that collaboratively. And, and, and also the fact that people will, it's going to be much richer if, if, a, if a team of people contribute than if, if one person is trying to do that single-handedly. Yes, got it, got it, fantastic. And last kind of question on, on, on Mixed Attainment for I want to talk to you about the conference. And that is what we, I mean, <laughs> I've exposed a few misconceptions I, I certainly have or have had about Mixed Attainment um, teaching. But what are some of the most common ones that you've heard, Helen? Because you, you must get a lot, right? Because it, it's one of those things that it's a phrase that gets banded around and the people have a lot of assumptions or preconceptions about it. So what, what, what are the, some of um, the misconceptions you've heard that, that fellow teachers have about mixed attainment teaching and what are your responses to them? Um, well, I think, I think we've already talked about two of them. So uh, one of them is, is this, because I, I, I do think it's a misconception that it's harder. I, I don't think it's harder. I think, I think it is different. And I think if, if you'd, I think people that have only ever taught mixed attainment classes don't, don't see it as, as harder. Um, so, I, but I do think it's different. I definitely think that that it's 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 a different. It requires a, a different approach, and I think if you don't um, embrace that, and 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 if if you attempt to teach a mixed attainment class the way you would teach a setted class, I think that that is going to be a difficult experience for the teacher and the students. Um, and I think the other myth is also something that we've talked about that it somehow creates a situation where you're teaching to the middle, and and maybe that's what happens if teachers don't change their approach for a mixed attainment class. So maybe if teachers are told we're suddenly moving to um, mixed attainment and just get on with it, and then if they approach that in the same way they teach their setted classes, then maybe they do end up teaching to the middle. But it's certainly not something that is an inevitable part of mixed attainment teaching. And it's about making sure that the training is in place and the resources are in place and that people have had the right um, you've had the right discussions with your team and, and you've prepared them with the right CPD and that, they're, that they, they know that it looks different and it's, and it's going to, it is a different approach. Well, that's, that's teed us up perfectly, Helen, now to, to, to talk about the Mixed Attainment Conference. So just, just tell us about it. Tell, tell us how it came about. And um, what, what I'm particularly interested in is what, what have been some of your key things that you've learned, your kind of key takeaways from the conference itself? Um, I think so. So how it came about was uh, Mike Ollerton put a tweet out saying that we needed a community of teachers that teach mixed attainment maths. And his tweet was in response to something else that someone had tweeted to him. And so I saw his and I said, oh, we should have a conference. Um, and it kind of just took off from there. So I suggested this conference and, and Mike was sort of, yeah, go ahead. And so I just started direct messaging people that I that I knew on Twitter that I knew taught mixed attainment classes. I started direct messaging them and saying, would you be up for running a workshop if I was to organise a conference? And um, luckily, people said yes. And some amazing people said yes that would normally be paid tons of money to go and hear at conferences just to agree to come and give up their time for free. So, so the first step was kind of finding people willing to run a workshop. Then um, it was obviously finding a venue. So, again, I had to kind of approach some, some universities and say, 
would you allow us to run a conference completely for free? <laughs> and um, <laughs> luckily, again, uh, we were able to set that up. So, and we've moved around. We found um, we're trying to keep it so that it's not in one place all yes. the time. So we kind of we got a free venue. We got workshop hosts that were prepared to appear for free, and then we just basically put out lots of tweets saying this is happening. And and for the first conference, I had no idea if we were going to get sort of 30 people or 50 people or or what that might even look like. But we just wanted to give it a go and see if there was um if there were people interested in attending that sort of conference. And um at each of the conferences, we've had over 100 delegates at each one, and it's just been a really fabulous atmosphere so so the delegates they're giving up their saturday again for free they're kind of coming willingly because they they want to know um they want they want to learn they want to share their experiences they want to ask questions and i think what one of the key things about the conferences is that none of us none of the workshop hosts are saying we are the expert in this and i don't think for one second i'm an expert in mixed attainment teaching but what we're saying is um, it is challenging because it's a, it's a different approach to teaching, but we, we believe in it philosophically and ethically. We believe in it and we want to make it work. And to make it work, we have to collaborate, not just within our teams, but across school and, and, and just bring this whole different range of strategies and ideas. And, and that's what I've learned from the conference is that it's not about one approach. It's not about saying I'm always going to teach using this style of teaching or this method of a teaching. It's certainly not the case that every lesson I do is an inquiry lesson, for example, but I use inquiry and I also use other approaches to mixed attainment teaching. And, and some of those are ideas that I've had given like that I've got from being at the conference and and then it, I think even more excitingly is when you share something. So so I shared learning journeys in a workshop at the conference. And then Gareth, Gareth Evans, who has since presented for us, he took the learning journeys and he developed them. And he came up with just some brilliant strategies to use around um, the initial concept. And for me, that was amazing. It was like, so, you know, I'd kind of... I'd kind of developed an idea and I got to a certain point with it, but I needed someone else's input, someone who hadn't used them from the beginning, who had came to it with fresh eyes and said, actually, this is, this would work really well. So, so I kind of think that that idea that started off in, in one department in one school has now become better because it's involved people from other departments and other schools. So, so that was really exciting for me. And if you add, uh, I mean, it sounds, well, when I, I've never been to one, but hope hope to get to, to one. I think was, we'll, we'll, we'll link to the dates of the of the up and coming ones um, on, in the show notes. But any other kind of ideas that you've taken away from it that have kind of transformed or improved improved your teaching? Um, so, <clears throat> sorry, I think ideas. Are, so one, I, there's been so many ideas, it's quite difficult to kind of, to sum it up really because it's more you kind of go away with the feeling so you attend the workshops and you go away sort of feeling re-inspired sort of like there's more and sometimes it's not about a completely new concept but it's about tweaking something you already do and thinking yes I do that but I could do that even better if I did it this way instead and it's just it's really confirmed for me that it is about sharing and and learning from each other's expertise and and that you want to do that within your department but to then do that cross departments is 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 even more powerful and and we want we want to get to the point where we've got like a whole bank of resources that are being shared and and strategies and ideas are on the website and, and we're not quite there yet but but we're hoping to get to that point eventually so 
that that's sort of the purpose of the community and 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 the, and the conferences and and trying to build the website around that as well it sounds superb and as i say we'll we'll definitely link link to all these um in the show notes i wonder if helen just before we, we start wrapping things up and, and getting to your reflect you, you you've mentioned growth mindsets um earlier on um in in this interview and it's it's one of the it's one of those phrases again that gets banded around a lot and i don't think it's particularly uh, particularly well understood but I also would assume that a growth mindset, when done well, is fundamental to this to this mixed attainment approach that, that you advocate. So I get two questions, really. What, what does a growth mindset mean to you and, and how have you gone about developing it in your students? OK, so um, I think really key is that I don't think for one minute that any person or any student is either growth mindset or fixed mindset. I don't, right. I don't believe that. I think that you fluctuate between those two frames of mind at different times I think that for example our year 11 students when they get their PPE results back might dip into a fixed mindset attitude but it's kind of that awareness that it that it matters that thinking about how you're feeling about your um, mass potential is important so it's recognizing it um, I think pupils with a growth mindset so it's, a, it's that concept that it, to have a growth mindset is that belief that ability isn't fixed and you can build it over time. And um, it's that idea that you can um, that you, you're not fearful of making mistakes, but you see that you're learning from them. It's that resilience so that desire to want to take on a challenging task and not want to revert back to doing something that's easy and you can get all the answers right. Um, it's that thing about where students really do believe they recognize that the effort they put in will lead to success and that it's not that they've been born mathematically talented it's how much effort they put in and it's students thinking about how they learn so I think that when we um, see those traits and recognize them and realize that they're important to our learning and when we're falling into a fixed mindset sort of addressing that and um, helping our students to address that so I think that's what it means to me and, and the, the mistake, I well, I, I think it's a mistake. The mistake I see a lot of schools make is think that you can get kids to have this growth mindset just by banging up a few posters on the wall, have a quick motivational yeah. assembly, and then all of a sudden all kids have got growth mindsets. But how have you gone about, what are the practicalities yeah. that you, you actually do within lessons or the conversations you have with kids to, to help them develop this growth mindset, Helen? See, um, what you said is so important and it's one of the things that I think is quite sad about where the growth mindset sort of movement, if you like, went was that it became about putting up posters in corridors with, you know, celebrities and sporting stars talking about their growth mindset. And, and I just don't think that that works at all. Um, and, and that's not what it is. It's about changing the culture of learning. And um, there's ways that that you that you go about doing that. So and, and you can do all of that without ever using the words growth mindset. So I, I think the worst thing is when it is just sort of a, a phrase that people yes. churn out without thinking about it. And you don't need to use the words growth mindset to develop a, a, that sort of culture in your classroom. So for me, and I know we touched upon this earlier in the interview, but I do explain to pupils the difference between performance and learning. And, and getting them to realise that being successful is not successfully completing a task or answering lots of questions correctly, and that's not how we measure success. And that success is measured by the progress that you've made and how much you've learned, and that might be quite a messy process, and you might make quite a lot of mistakes along the way. So I kind of I want them to embrace challenge and see that as as the most important part of a lesson, and not to be fearful of it. Um, so it's kind of that thing about. Um, when students make mistakes, 
um, making sure that that's um, talked about in, in what and what have you learned from that? How has that moved your learning on? Um, so I, I talked to them about the importance of um, it, taking risks and overcoming that fear of failure and that you might you might get you might get it wrong first time. But if you if you keep persevering, um, you'll get you, you'll get there in the end that that understanding will come to you. Um, and so I think, again, it's just it's that thing about progress, focusing on the progress and they're not going to make progress if they stay in their comfort zone. And that's what's really important to get that across to students. Um, can, sorry, so, Alan, can, can I can I just ask on that as well? Um, would would you agree with me that whilst it's true that kids shouldn't link success to getting loads of questions right and so on, that still the kind of foundations upon which a growth mindset, whatever we want to call it, are built, are still that kids have got to have a feeling that they they can be successful, or if they put the effort in, they are going to achieve whatever we believe that achievement um, is going to look like. And yeah. for me, possibly the most concrete way that's going to happen is if, to take your example from your year seven sequence lesson, kids do the kind of mini assessment at the start and then they do a different one at the end. Surely kids need to be, do well, whatever we define yeah, well I'm to not... be on that last one, because otherwise it's all well and good or saying to kids, it's fine to make mistakes. We all learn from them and all that. But kids have got to see the fruits of their labor, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I'm not for one minute suggesting that I don't want them to successfully <laughs> sure, sure. answer questions correctly. <laughs> no, that would of course, be ridiculous. <laughs> well, obviously you want them to get to that point. What I'm trying to say is when they are able to successfully answer those questions and they're successfully able to problem solve and reason, then you want them to move on. And yes. by moving on, they're going to, in the process of moving moving on they're going to be stuck they're going to make some mistakes and yes. then they will eventually be able to successfully answer the questions and then they move on so it's a kind of it's not wanting them to think that the end goal of a lesson is that yes. everything you've done has been correctly answered right i would almost say if you've got to the end of the lesson and every single question you've had from the start question to the end question has been answered correctly then i would say to students at some point they should have switched tasks you know, because yes. once once they'd realised they were getting the questions right, they should have moved on. So it's I, kind I think... of um, a, a primary school teacher kind of described this in, in a way that I thought was quite interesting once. So we're very much in that sort of, you know, when you kind of say to children, oh, red, amber, green, you're understanding, you yes. red, are you amber, and, and you have that kind of green as the goal. And you want them to get to green, but you want them to understand that when they're in the amber is when they're actually learning. So it's not about saying That's nice. I like by the that. end That's of the lesson. Nice. Yeah, so you don't want them by the end of the lesson to be I'm I'm not saying at the end of the lesson you made twenty mistakes, fantastic, that's what I wanted. You've got twenty correct answers. That's not what I was looking for. I would never say I would never think I mean that would be ridiculous. That's yes. not what I'm talking about at all. <laughs> but it is kind of recognising that if you are going to move on along that process you will struggle and you will make mis you will make mistakes along the way but eventually you will get to the point where you are successful and when you've reached that success rather than sitting back and thinking yes I, i've reached the pinnacle i can do all these questions right i'm going to stay here and do this now every lesson for the next five lessons you're kind of prepared to seek out that new challenge and move yourself on Yes. Yeah. And I think I mean, the reason I say it um, is because I think that, again, this is another mistake I see schools make and, and I've made in the past, Helen. And that's I think and I don't know if you agree with me on this or not, but I think 
we can encourage our kids to struggle too much. And if, if maths is always a struggle, if they're always not, not quite understanding something, but they're close, but it's struggle, 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 struggle. I think then it's quite difficult to, to develop this, this growth mindset and this resilience, because unless kids see that this struggle does lead to something. And, and I think, I think kids have to taste success relatively successful. uh, Sorry, taste success relatively regularly. They have to have periods of struggle followed by a breakthrough. Okay, now let's have a bit more struggle than a breakthrough. Whereas I think in the past, the mistake I've made is to think it's fine for kids to be struggling for 20, 30 minutes regularly each lesson and not putting enough emphasis on these moments of success, if if that makes sense. I I think it does. But I think that, again, links back to that idea that they do get to self-select their tasks. Yes. And it's kind of getting them to realize when it is appropriate to move on and that's why we like in my department we link that to not just have you correctly answer the questions because maybe they have but maybe they didn't really understand how is that about can you explain what you've done to someone else and 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 that and then then you're ready to move on does does that make sense yeah it does no i'm 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 with you there i'm with you there um just to wrap things up let's 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 just get get you reflecting on a couple of things so first are there any any particular books that you'd recommend teachers should read um yeah i'm reading at the moment uh, miseducation by diane ray and um that's really interesting and um yeah i'm i'm, I'm part way through that at the moment and What's it's that just about? fascinating it's it's about um inequality and how schools and, and universities have inadvertently reproduce social inequalities so that's about sort of what happens to pupil premium students in our education system and that's why it's interesting to me because that's kind of the the reason why i'm so um passionate about mixed attainment teaching and then um another book that i think is really interesting is joe bowler's mathematical mindsets book which um i thought was interesting as well and i don't um, necessarily ag- agree with all parts of it but there's quite a lot of things in there that sort of resonated with me and so so both of those books and uh they were both gifts from colleagues that have been really inspirational to me as well so, <laughs> so quite, oh, quite nice. fond of those books oh they're, yeah. they're great great choices Helen. and final question for me before i hand over to you for your big three is what, what do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now um i wish i'd started using inquiry sooner to be honest so um I, I, that is kind of fundamental to to my approach to mixed attainment teaching that's a great that, oh and can i ask we just 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 on that one um because obviously we, we, we've talked inquiries a lot and obviously you you you've the ex you've the um advantage that via the mixed attainment conference and also your network of teachers that you you'll have perhaps experienced or heard about different approaches i, I assume that there are quite a few teachers out there who teach mixed attainment classes successfully without necessarily using inquiry tasks as, as much as you, uh, you would do or andrew would do do have you picked up any things that that they do that's perhaps different from inquiries but that works for them um so a, a, a key thing that keep that people do talk about is that sort of i don't know whether you would call them low threshold high ceiling or, or the multiple entry point tasks so that 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 comes up a lot in people's practice so those sort of tasks that do allow students to access things at different levels um sort of with different approaches and different understandings so that that comes up a lot um and um, similarly with the questions, it's kind of um, creating and, and building sets of questions that build cleverly upon each level of understanding. So 
I don't, I don't think I've explained that very well. It's probably better to have those people <laughs> to, no, to no, answer I, about that. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the, the, the low barrier high ceiling is, is, is something that I've been a fan of for, for a long time. And when you get the right one of those activities, it's magical because it, again, fits into what we were just discussing a couple of minutes ago about my belief that kids have to be successful and that certainly I know some students and maybe this is just the kind of the, the culture or whatever but if they've not experienced some form of success relatively soon into a task then it can be quite disheartening especially if they look around and they see that you know so, some other students are, are kind of motoring the way through it so that's what I like about the low barrier high ceiling that you can get into the task fairly quickly but yeah. then that's when the depth reveals itself and you've got the challenge and, and so on so I, I absolutely love activities like that and the other the other time Type that you mentioned there with the intelligently designed questions this is my latest obsession this Helen is, is is carefully thinking through the sequence of questions so using kind of minimally different examples or things where everything stays the same and, and, and some, something changes and I'm fortunate enough to be interviewing um, Anne Watson and John Mason um, next month about using variation theory in this way so that sets of questions that look potentially boring have so much rich mathematics in there because kids are able to make these connections between them because of the careful way these questions have been sequenced and designed so that that's fascinating to hear if that's the same thing that we're talking about that's fascinating to yeah. hear that that is something that would also possibly work in mixed attainment that's something that i know um sam hoggard talked about in his in his recent workshop and i think tom frankham has as well so yeah that is yeah we are talking about the same thing. Oh, good. That's good. That's good. Well, end on a harmonious note. That's, that's good news. <laughs> um, so over to you now for your big three. So um, are there any three websites or blog posts or anything you like that you'd, you'd recommend our listeners check out? And I will link to these as well in the show notes. Well, it's it's a work in progress, but I would very much like people to check out the Mixed Attainment Maths website. Um, it, it is a website for the community. So um, it's, it's I don't think of it. It's not my website. It's, it's for the community of mixed attainment math teachers so everyone that's run workshops has contributed to that equally so um i think that's um i would like people to to have a look at that um obviously inquiry maths obviously and um also openmiddle.com got it yeah they're excellent choices and obviously we've had um, andrew on the show for inquiry but that that open middle website is is, is phenomenal it's 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 such a simple idea that yeah, it's just absolutely ideal that, that kids start off at the same point. There is essentially kind of a, an end goal that's that's almost fixed, but it's what happens in that middle bit, the different ways kids approach it and so on. That Yeah, and it, this whole thing's just been fascinating to me, Helen, the, the fact that, yeah, we, we are, we both love the same resources. But yeah, I, I get the feeling our lessons are, are different, but I, I'll tell you what, just as I'm kind of wrapping things up here, well, first thing, obviously, to, to, to thank you for your time and giving it up to, to come on this show. And and thank you for the work you're doing, raising awareness and w with mixed attainment. It's certainly been invaluable for me because it's an area I'm 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 weak on. I've, I've, I make make no bones about that. I've I've not experienced teaching it enough. I've got lots of misconceptions about it that you've certainly helped me and um, resolve a few of them today. But also, just <laughs> I think this is this is the podcast that's going to get me thinking the most now. I, I've got to, I've got to reflect on on what on earth I'm doing with my, my kind of practice here. It was like this after I spoke to Andrew Blair. I had to go on a three hour walk just to kind of <laughs> take in all he'd said and and just think because so I started these podcasts what two two and a half years ago, two and a bit years ago now, and I was I was very much a fan of 
um, investigations, rich tasks, inquiries, and I was doing them all the time. Then I started speaking to Greg Ashman, Chris, Bol Chris Bolton, reading about cognitive load theory, and then I thought, right, okay, so direct instruction is the way, and, and, and I'm, I'm really comfortable where I'm at now. But then I speak to Andrew, and I speak to yourself, and then I start thinking, flipping heck, am I going wrong again? So I'm going to have to have a, I'm going to have to have a really, really careful think through about all the things that you, you've discussed there, Helen. So thank you for giving me a headache in the, in the best of ways. Um, and I'm going to try and come to terms with what we spoke about. And I'm going to reflect upon it in the takeaway at the end of the interview. But yeah, as I say, thank you for your time and all the work you do. And thank you for what I've personally found an absolutely fascinating conversation. Okay. Okay. Thank, thank you. Thank you. So there you have it. There was my interview with Helen Hindle. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. Now, as I said in my intro, this has given me loads to think about. And I'm pleased to say I am back from my long walk and I think I've just about got my thoughts in order. It reminds me of the interview I did with Andrew Blair, where again, I thought I had everything sorted and then he turned my world upside down again. But where am I now having spoken to Helen? Well, the first thing is, what does the research say about mixed attainment setting, uh, mixed attainment versus uh, teaching in sets? And um, when I spoke to Lucy Rycroft Smith um, from Cambridge Expresso fame, we discussed the fact that the majority of research tends to find that mixed attainment teaching is beneficial for low attainers, whereas sets have a small positive impact on high attainers. And that would be my kind of intuition about it. But it's really interesting, just a couple of days before this podcast was recorded, I saw a tweet by Dylan William, and I'm just going to read it out. Having spent years researching ability grouping, I have now reluctantly concluded that most of that research was a waste of time because we didn't get a handle on the way that teachers were assigned to classes. And that's fascinating for because I'm obsessed by research these days, but it's as, as I increasingly find, it's, it's very difficult to find not reliable is the wrong word, but, but research that you can definitively say has reached a set conclusion in an educational setting because it's, it's very hard to control for other variables. So it's all well and good um, comparing mixed ability teaching and results compared to sets. But as Dylan points out, how are teachers being assigned to those sets? And I know in many schools, um, you will tend to find that possibly your best teachers will be given the top sets or your best teachers in key stage four will be given the old CD board line, and I guess now the grade four, grade five sets, and possibly your non-math specialist, they may be given the bottom sets, especially in year seven and year eight. So that makes it very hard, in fact, impossible to make accurate um, comparisons between mixed ability setting, mixed ability and setting. So that's one thing to bear in mind, that the research isn't clear cut by any stretch of the imagination. But there are a few big, well, there's another really big issue when it comes to setting. Um, Chris Bolton, a previous podcast and a, indeed a future podcast guest on this show, has written a wonderful series of blog posts that I'll link to in the show notes about his, his views on setting and, and mixed attainment. And he makes the point, and again, I'll read another quote here. Considering our relatively poor ability to accurately measure performance, never mind learning, it's doubtful that set changes were truly meaningful or helpful. And Chris is referring to the point that whenever setting happens, firstly, it's, it's rarely set in stone. 
Um, often it's the case that kids will move up sets and down sets, and that makes it incredibly difficult, I find anyway, to form a relationship with those students because you've got kids disappearing left, right, and center. Then after a half-term test, another kid finds himself in your set and you've got to integrate them in there and so on. But also it begs the question, how accurately can we actually set these students? And again, uh, I'm obsessed with Dylan William and there's there's a, a link to a wonderful piece of uh, research and indeed a slide from one of his presentations on one of Chris's blog posts that just shows how how bad teachers and maths departments are at actually getting kids in the right set. It, it's frightening. It's a frightening slide. Indeed, I'm going to copy the slide and put, and put it in the, in the blog post. So we, we've got the issue that it's hard to get kids in the right set to begin with, and, and any school that, that's moved kids about from, from set to set will know this. But then you've also got the issue that it's not the case that kids have a certain ability in mathematics. Mathematics is a flipping wide-ranging subject. I always say on this podcast, I was always pretty good when it came to algebra and number, but pretty useless when it came to shape. So should I have been in like top set for algebra, and then as soon as we're teaching a shape topic, suddenly move me down to bottom set, but then when I get a bit bigger, move me up a bit. But then if I move up, someone's got to move down and so on. So you've got huge, huge, huge issues with setting, both in terms of the fact that it's, it's hard to get kids into the right set, and is it even possible at all when maths is such a, a wide-ranging topic. But then, then I started thinking, right, okay, so I'm in a bit of trouble here because you, you'll, have, you'll have heard in the interview that, that me and Helen, we disagreed slightly on, on perhaps the order of teaching and our approach to teaching some things. So it was interesting, I thought, when I asked Helen, would she teach the same way if she was forced to teach in, in sets? And she said, yes, yeah, she would. And to be honest with you, if I was teaching in a mixed ability setting, I think I would teach the exact same way as well. So let me try and make that argument. I am still absolutely convinced that an example problem pair approach with silent teacher um, gives the very best chance for students to understand the concept and I described this um, in chapter what is it chapter six of my book and discussed it well, many a time on this podcast with Peps McRae and, and with Greg Ashman that way of introducing a topic kids seeing it first in silence then with annotation and narration then them having a go on their own then using Doug Lemov's technique of show call. I don't think there's a better way to get kids to understand a concept, whether it is a mixed attainment class or it is a set class. So that would stay the same for me. But, it, but it's interesting to note, and I, I brought this up with Helen a couple of times, that for that approach to work, for, well, for a start, I need the whole class to be silent to benefit from silent teacher. And I don't think I can do that in the way that Helen describes her lessons happening, where kids are ready to be moved on at different, different times in the lesson. I want the whole class ready and with me at the start when I'm introducing a concept. And then for me, the differentiation happens later. And I believe to give them the best chance, all kids of understanding that, is silent teacher example problem pair and so on. And then for me, differentiation comes in the intelligent practice and then later the purposeful practice that follows. This well-varied sequence of questions that allows kids to make connections. And differentiation, for me, occurs in the amount of time kids are spending on those activities. And I think that will be the same for Helen as well. Um, you, Helen described in that, that series of lessons on sequences, the fact that some kids will be seeing deeper connections and will be ready to be moved on quicker than, than other students. So differentiation certainly comes in the form of time. But also Helen described how you've got students selecting different activities, then making the choice. And I, I'm not convinced that has that 
bigger role anymore to play in my lessons. I would rather have thought through very carefully the sequence of questions that kids are going to get. All kids are going to get those questions and then I'm going to make my decisions for what happens for the rest of the lesson based on, on how they progress with those. And again, you can make the argument, but wait a minute, that's surely it's terrible. That's starting all kids off on the same thing, forcing all students to watch the same example and so on. But if you, if you say I'm holding back kids, I'm only holding them back for the couple of minutes that it takes to do the example problem pair. And if I'm confusing students, those students who need extra support, I'm only doing that for a few minutes as well. And then I've got opportunity to give them help, but only after they've had their very best chance, in my opinion, of understanding it using the way I'm presenting those examples. And... <laughs> The other thing is the tasks and activities Helen described, they're some of my favorites in the world. Whenever I hear Enrich, or I know um, in a later tweet, Helen mentioned that she was a huge fan of Malcolm Swan's uh, shell activities, and then Don Stewart's median. I love all those too, but I just use them in a different way. I use them at the end of the sequence of lessons, at a time when I believe my kids are in the best position to get the most out of them. After we've gone through the example problem pair, the intelligent practice, the purposeful practice, after we've helped get those skills fluent and then kids have started thinking deeper about it, that's when I believe kids are in a better position to problem solve, to make all these, these uh, connections. But again, that I think that's just something we, we disagree with and I disagree with Andrew Blair on that, not on the tasks that are used, but on the order that those tasks are used. And I don't think that changes whether it's mixed ability or setting. And it goes back again to, to what we define success to be and what we think motivates kids. I think for Helen and I think for Andrew, a key driver of that success is a sense of purpose. Kids in these inquiry lessons and in investigative lessons, they want the teacher to teach them things because it gives them a purpose, because they've got that purpose based on the activity or the inquiry they're doing. So kids will be uh, in an inquiry, they'll reach a point where they think, right, I don't have enough knowledge to get to this next stage. Teacher, can you please teach it me? And I think that's fine, but for me, I think a more stable uh, kind of indicator or driver, I should say, of motiv motivation is what I define as success. And I think whilst getting loads of ticks isn't everything, I think that's motivating for students. I think it's motivating for them to be presented with a worked example that they don't have a clue how to do. And then by a really careful way of modeling, again, silent teacher, narration, and then being presented with a really well-designed sequence of questions that allows them to go so far into a topic and start to make these connections. I believe that's motivating as well. So I don't think our approaches are in complete contrast to each other, but I do disagree on the order that things are done. And again, like Helen, I'd be, I think I'd use my approach in a mixed ability setting as well as, um, as I do now when I teach in sets. So the final thing I guess to reflect on is, is what I want to teach mixed ability. Um, purely for the effect it has the damaging effect I think sets can have on teacher expectations, I would say yes. And I described to Helen, I was in my school the, um, very recently in preparation for this interview, just listening to conversations and you, you, you do, you hear it all the time and I've been guilty of this. I don't think my class are gonna be capable of doing this activity. They're only a third set. These are a bottom set, they've no chance with this. Or when uh, kids get scores back, oh, that's not bad for the set that they're in. That's not bad for a bottom set. And, Again, I've, I say I've been, I've been guilty of this myself, and it's even if you not even if you if you're conscious of it, it's very hard to 
to not impart those expectations on our students, just the way we act, the materials we give kids and so on. So for the effects on expectations, I think mixed ability has a great amount going for it because you simply cannot have those expectations of entire classes. However, I am not entirely sold on the top end for year 11. Um, I think whenever you've got some topics, and I used the example of further trigonometry in the interview with Helen, if I've got two or three students in my class who are, I mean, again, you've got to be careful with the language you use here. I'm going to say capable, but I know I'm going to get torn apart with this, who are capable of accessing those grade nine, really tricky multi-mark questions where they need further trigonometry, linking in with algebra, there'll be surds floating around left, right, and center. I think I need to, I need a lot of time to help support kids to get them good at that. I need the whole class watching me. I need half an hour in a lesson. I need 40 minutes in a lesson. I need to have thought through my explanations and so on. And again, when I pitched this to Helen, she said, but that's fine because the rest of the class can be getting on with something else. But what happens if the rest of that class needs support for half an hour or 40 minutes? And what happens after half an hour if they, my kids who I'm trying to explain this concept to haven't got it and I need to take another lesson on it? I just think that for those top end complex topics, I think I need the kids on their own so I can dedicate the full time to them and I'm not doing a disservice either to those kids and to the kids who are getting on with, with something else. But I know the arguments against it. How do I determine what those kids are? Who, sorry, who those kids are? I don't wanna deprive students or the students having access to that. But at the same time, I also don't want to deprive them of the opportunity to develop the other fundamental skills that they're going to need and get that extra time practicing those skills to have a hope of accessing this more complex material. So I think for top end year 11, I'm not entirely sold on mixed ability. And also I think for bottom end, say year seven and year eight, those students who who need those key number skills um, into play, who need to be fluent um, in their number bonds and their times tables. Because I am sold on the research that suggests until that happens, kids simply cannot access the higher level, more complex stuff because you can't solve problems and learn from solving problems if all your working memory capacity is taken up trying to do the, the absolute basics. And I know Helen says that kids will get some, those kids will get something out of the sequences inquiry. And I think in that case, they probably will. But at the same time, there's a whole host of maths that they will really, really, really struggle to access until they've got their numeracy absolutely sorted. Again, whatever we define that to be. So I have a, I, I have a question mark when it comes to bottom end year seven and, and Helen talks about nurture groups and so on. I don't know if that's the answer, but I know that it's, I'm convinced I should say that it's fundamentally important for kids to get those core basic skills absolutely sorted, for them to be able to enjoy and benefit from the type of activities that, that Helen was describing. So that's, <laughs> that's where I'm at following this interview. And I, I just love talking to Helen because again, it challenged me. It kept me on my toes and it's given me loads to think about. And that's where, I, that's where I'm at at the moment, but who knows what's gonna happen with, with, with future guests that I speak to. So all that remains for me to do is to once again thank Helen for her time and uh, for, 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 yeah, just her, 
her generosity in putting forward her arguments, setting up things like the Mixed Entertainment Conference. She's great on Twitter. If you ever drop her, um, drop her a tweet, she'll always come back with advice, support, put you in contact with someone else and so on. So thank you, Helen, for all you do with that. And thank you to podcastthemes.com for the uh, lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And finally, thank you to you, my loyal listeners, for keeping listening to these. I think we've just about hit over 100 hours of, of these, these podcasts now, which is, which is ridiculous. But I'm, I'm so pleased that people find them useful, find them effective, free CPD on the move, and long may they continue. I've got a wonderful host of guests uh, coming up in the next few months. I'm dead, dead excited about it. I can't wait to share them with you. So thank you for listening. You take care of yourselves, and I shall see you soon. Bye for now. <laughs>